Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Benio. On this episode, I am very excited to bring the conversation I had with David Lipsky. David is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Absolutely American, and although, of course, you end up becoming yourself, uh, he's written for The Rolling Stone, New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, and he is the recipient of the National Magazine Award and the GLAAD Media Award. Teaches writing and literature at New York University. And he is the author of the latest book, The Parrot and the Igloo Climate and the Science of Denial. And that is what we talk about in this conversation. Uh, we start by talking about how he came to write this book on climate and denial, the origins of discovering climate change, Edison and Westinghouse, talk about Einstein and his influence, talk about the history of scientists observing climate change. Talk about Nixon, how we got the Clean Air Act and the EPA. We talk about Fred Singer, uh, his evolution, his involvement with the Unification Church. It's a wild story. We talk about problems with admitting when we're tricked or wrong. We talk about Singer's climate denial and, and how it went from the Unification Church, which scaled then to political think tanks in D.C. We talk about PR campaigns for science denial for smoking and then climate. And then finally, we talk about where do we go with climate science and the denial that still persists, unfortunately. So this is a three-hour conversation. Um, I I don't think either one of us intended it for it to be three hours. We kind of just said, let's just see where it goes. And we <laughs> so we make jokes and references to it uh, all in good fun throughout the conversation, which which I thought was was wonderful. This, you know, in, in some ways, you know, I think um, – you never quite know with with a guest how it will be, you know, how how long you'll get sometimes, or or how the dynamic will be. And you know, David and I just hit it off kind of from the beginning. We 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 probably talked for a little bit beforehand, uh, uh, before you even hit record, which was really lovely too. And then afterwards, so um, you know, it's it's I think it's great when you can really pull elements of a person in their work. And you get to to kind of hear their voice, really. And, you know, I, I'm so appreciative to David for just coming along the ride with me and kind of trusting me and, and just maneuvering through uh, the conversation. So it's three hours, but it doesn't feel like three hours. I don't think so. Uh, listening back to it, I, I really enjoyed it. Just it, it was, you know, we're dealing with all these different topics, but there's a through line there. And it does kind of feel like you're just listening to two people have a conversation about important things. Um, and, and David is, is such a master at talking about some of the science and talking about the history of things and some of the politics of things. I mean, you, he, he's an exceptional writer, um, but he really does have a grasp and handle on, on the ins and outs of this stuff. And, and uh, it really was a, a joy and a pleasure to, to talk with David. Um, I, I greatly enjoy this conversation, and I'm hopeful that all the listeners out there will as well. As always, you can uh, subscribe uh, to my Substack to listen to this conversation or other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube, so subscribe, follow in both those places, and uh, share widely with, uh, with your friends and folks that you think will be interested in the podcast. And uh, now I bring you David Lipsky. I am here with David Lipsky. David? Thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to this. Uh, Xavier, it's a treat to it's a treat to be here. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Uh, yeah, yeah, same, same. 
So uh, you've written an awesome book. It's called The Parrot in the Igloo, Climate and the Science of Denial. Uh, very, very appropriate for us mm. to, to talk about. Uh, so before we get into it, why don't you just tell listeners um, you know, who you are, what you do professionally, academically, and uh, any of the other particulars? Uh, so uh, it's my, I think it's my third nonfiction book. Um, uh, first big nonfiction, I mean, just long nonfiction book. So big in that you, it's hard to hold in your hand. Like you can't, you can't put it in your pocket easily. <laughs> Was a book about uh, West Point called Absolutely American, mm. where uh, West Point, but uh, maybe this will come up later, but West Point invited me to go through the whole training process as a reporter. Wow. And that was great. That was just, that was a really uh, very cool experience. Um, and then my next nonfiction book was uh, a book about driving the Midwest with David Foster Wallace, who's a writer who I really admire. I yeah. mean, I'm not especially alone in that. <laughs> it's like saying, I really like ice cream. <laughs> um, uh, and that, uh, that became uh, a movie that is great uh, called The End of the Tour. And then I spent uh, a long time working on this. Before that, uh, oh, I won. I won. That, that's how writers actually think about those things. But the appropriate way to say that is that I received the National Magazine Award for the magazine version of what became the book about David Wallace called, although, of course, you end up becoming yourself. I received uh, the GLAD Award for a piece I did just before I went to West Point, which was about how hard it was. One of the very nice things about this century so far is that um, how much better certain political things are. Uh, I spent a year just seeing what it was like to grow up gay if you were not in a big town, but if you were in a small town like Sandy, Utah, or Heard County, Tennessee. Uh, I also have written fiction. Um, I have been anthologized in the Best American Short Stories. And I've published stuff in the New Yorker and Limes and uh, Harper's, and uh, I'm a contributor to Rolling Stone. And then academically, I teach. I'm uh, I teach in both the graduate and the undergraduate program in the creative writing program at New York University. Mm, no, that's 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 wonderful. I, it's uh, it's always nice to see people when they're in different worlds, right? You're, you're in nonfiction. You're in fiction. You've done all different topics. Uh, it's always nice to see people when they're when they're kind of in different spaces. I feel like that only just makes you better uh, as a writer and how you're thinking about things. And so I think that's that's wonderful. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's like um, when you meet those people and they were clever enough to have passports from two or three different countries. <laughs> when you were saying that, that's like, yeah, okay, so he can he can go, he can head out in fiction for a while, and then if it gets too hot over there, he can hide mm -hmm. out in nonfiction. That's right. <laughs> so I guess the, the the question I have is is for about this book. So it, it's very interesting in the fact that I, I wasn't, when I first started it, I wasn't able to kind of place it. I was like, well, this is about climate and denial. So I guess it's about people that deny that there's a, a issue with climate change. But the first part of the book is about inventors. And you you talk about, you, know, you mentioned Franklin, you had Morris, Edison, you talk about electricity. So how did you decide to, I guess, kind of organize the book? And why did you kind of start there with inventors before getting to uh, the scientists uh, more in the 20, 19th, 20th century, and then into uh, the, the the nihilists, I guess you can say. Well, the uh, I got I was actually working on a different book when I encountered some things about warming that were shocking to me. 
and that the book is designed to preserve and then to communicate that shock. So it would be like <laughs> if, uh, you know, if I was plugging in a, a light bulb just because we're talking about it and, and I got some terrible electric shock that like knocked me out and I was like a cart, like a cartoon figure with like my face singed and like stars hanging around. And I wanted to communicate that feeling to the reader. Mm. Um, so I stopped what I was doing. And then when I started thinking that I was shocked, one of the things I was shocked about was how long we've known about climate and uh, what carbon dioxide does to climate and how it would eventually change our weather, which uh, we've all been seeing, especially in the last couple of years. And especially I think this year, yeah. Um, and when I began to think about it a lot, it seemed like the, the deniers who occupy the second half of the book, the way they were able to do what they were doing, the reason they could F up the world was that people didn't know this issue and they didn't know how long it's been around. And like most other people, if I hear a book is about science, it's not where my hand falls Mm. Uh, like if I'm reaching towards the bookshelf at Barnes and Noble and I'm reaching towards the science section, it's like, uh, the spot in, uh, across the spider verse, mm. like I will reach and then my hand will go out. It's in fiction again, right. <laughs> or, or it's in politics or it's in like Janet Malcolm or Joan Diddy. And it doesn't, even though I reach out to science. So I wanted to tell the story of climate in a way that would be fun, optional, good. You'd read it for fun, where you'd read it and you would say, hey, you need a book for the weekend. You need a book to read for the next month. This is just fun as hell. And it mm -hmm. happens to be about climate because then when the next person tried to come and lie about it, when when they did, you'd say, oh man, you're using that lie that they tried to use in 91? <laughs> or wow, you know, like that was great for them, but I, I can date that lie. Or like, right. that's the 2005 lie. You're really going to say junk science? Seriously? Uh -huh. That was invented by APCO. You're really trying to run that on me? <laughs> so I wanted, you know, it was a great story, but I wanted to tell it as a story. And the story absolutely begins with uh, Samuel Morse and with Edison. So I thought, like you and I, when we were uh, in the when you and I were limbering up at the starting line, you know, doing little wind sprints and getting ready for our trek today across your show, uh -huh. uh, just when we were stretching and stuff like that. Uh, you mentioned Anthony Doerr's book, "All the Light We Cannot mm -hmm. See," right? Yeah, yeah. And like that's a thrilling long book, right? And I thought, okay, can I do this? Like. Can I do a thrilling long book about how we got into this fix? Mm. And it's a saga. And so I thought that's the best way to tell the story. It'd be the most entertaining way to tell the story. And it's also the truest way to tell the story. So that's why I began there. Mm. Like, Xavier, um, uh, uh, I interrupted you. Please go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, I think that's important because I think that people, you know, I mean, I actually like how. I was telling this to somebody earlier I, when I was talking about the book is that I actually like that there's not a lot of modern current stuff about climate change. Like it's not like, you know, in 2021 or something like uh -huh. that, it's, it's, yeah. it's less of that, right? It usually, I think it kind of sort of ends sort of with the Bush administration. And I guess there's some things there afterwards, but it's it kind of, it's everything up to sort of around the early 2000s. Yeah. It tells and, a particular story. Which, I like that. Yeah. It ends in... It ends in two spots. It ends in at the, I guess, in December of 2007. And then it also ends with Hurricane Sandy, which uh, is in the early part of the last decade. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I thought that was important because it's like, okay, you know, 
we we know a lot more currently of a lot of activism we've had a lot of in different spaces of people talking about this issue but i think it i think you're right we hear some things about where this stuff comes from but we don't get kind of a full the full saga right of all, all the kind of parts there which i think is really helpful so again i think i thought it was interesting about like you know in the beginning of saying well you know there were there was a time where people were creating things and they were creating things and then how their creation or I guess their discovery, if you want to take Edison, you know, is, and then how was that used for, you know, when you talk about Westinghouse, right. And how, how did we use the light bulb and how did that start? You know, you start to see like the kind of beginnings of that. So I guess for you, what's the kind of starting point or, you know, you can talk about Roger Ravel if you want, but what's the kind of piece of like where we first, um, whether it's here in the U S or, or other, other places where we started to notice that, Hey, Something's not right with the climate, <laughs> and uh, we're we're completely yeah. fucking this up. Yeah. Like we we as a human race are really having a much bigger play here. Yeah, when do funny. you find that kind of starts to really come online? Uh, first person to really notice it is a guy named Guy Stewart Calendar, and he's one of those self abnegators, just sort of slightly shy, who will prefer to just use their initials. So his name is G S Calendar, is how he is known in the record. Um, and then after we do this, I would love to go back because there was a question that you asked me, I think an email um, about Edison and Westinghouse that was interesting because it's part of the same story. But uh, Roger Ravel, so the book is designed around Roger Ravel in a way. Like he's the first person that we meet because in 1956, uh, by 1956, this was shocking to me, and it's one of the reasons why I stopped the other book that I was on. And it was a book that I was really enjoying writing, and that I think uh, was a you know you write books you want to read. And so there was a book that I had uh, agreed to do that was on a topic that I thought would be really thrilling, and it involved knowing about electricity. Uh, and so I was doing a certain amount of research about um, how we got electricity, and then I was reading in the 50s. And there was all this writing in the early 50s, like the Times ran uh, more than a half dozen stories from 1950 to 1953. And they were, the headlines were, is the climate changing? It was like, it was like the paper having this really cool circular argument with itself. It was, is the climate changing? No, the climate isn't changing. It seems like the climate is changing. Our changing climate, how industry might be changing climate. Old timers are right when they tell us climate is different. And finally, yes, the climate is really changing. And that was between 50 and 53. And then by 56, when the Times wrote about uh, what was then called the greenhouse effect, it was so familiar to their readers that the science reporter at the time said, the scientist who they were talking to is a man named Gilbert Plass from Johns Hopkins and the Navy. Uh, and they said he, you know, Mr. Plass uses the familiar greenhouse analogy. Think about that. Like 1956, October, the familiar greenhouse analogy. And in May of that year, Roger Ravel, who is the first really distinguished uh, American climate scientist, and a great figure. Um, he was such a great figure that there's a, like there are buildings named after him. He helped start University of California at San Diego. And there's like a Roger Ravel Hall, mm. which was named after him when he was 50. I think it's just a right. And it's not, and he's, he's not doing it for money, right? Anybody who has made a pile and wants to give it to UCSD presumably can get a building named after them now. But they just named it after him because he was cool. Mm. 
Um, and in May of 1956, same year, he told Time magazine, there's this thing called the greenhouse effect. And in about 50 years, it could have a violent effect on our climate. And that's an, yeah, I saw you, Xavier, yeah. you're shaking your head and closing your eyes in slight pain. That's why I wrote the book. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. 70 years. That's okay. So why don't, why don't I know that? Why don't, why don't most people know that? Like, this feels like, you know what, you know what the story gets told? Yeah. You know, you know, Al Gore and his dad, and they were kind of, you know, the hippies yeah. in the sixties yeah. kind of, were talking about it. Maybe people have heard about, um, uh, Rachel, um, Rachel Carson, Ra- Rachel Carson. Yeah. Thank you. Um, okay. But it just feels like, you know, you know, on page 26 of, you know, whatever on the, of the newspaper and that no one really reads. Yeah. And you're saying the well known or, or talked about greenhouse effect in 50, in 56. I mean, how, how, how do we not hear that part of the story? I guess that we've know. known about this yeah. for 70 years. Yeah, to me, and also, I don't know if your friends or if you yourself have a problem with, like, you know, uh, you have to go in and get your teeth checked, right? Or you have to pay a certain bill, right? Or you have to sign a form for your kid, right? Like, it is the longest and most disastrous unpaid bill in history. Mm -hmm. Like, we were told, you have to take care of this. So, we don't know it. I think maybe it's shame. Maybe, (laughs) Maybe shame has stopped us from talking about it. It didn't benefit anyone. I mean, the one great thing about writing this and putting it together is there's a lot of mistrust in the last five or 10 years, and it's corporate-sponsored mistrust in a lot of ways, or politically-sponsored mistrust in the media, in reporting on things. And reporting on this was rock solid. Right Right from the beginning, the newspapers and the science reporters and the science magazines understood what this was, and they could not entirely make the handshake deal with politicians uh anytime people were polled on it they were in the right place on it um but that story the actual history of this issue it doesn't make anyone look great except for reporters and scientists people don't like reporters at the moment and they're anxious about scientists because they think that the scientists will make them feel bad for not knowing as much science as they should Mm. so that's why it's not a known thing and when we get to it it really came to a boil in the late 70s and we still didn't do anything so yeah i think maybe uh, maybe, like if we, let's say humanity or the part of humanity that's in this part of North America, if they were like a ball team, it's like you don't really brag about your worst seasons or you didn't win a game, and <laughs> we didn't really, we, yeah, we didn't win a game on this until like the late eighties. Yeah, they were they were the we were the Detroit Lions for you know go oh and sixteen that one season. No, yeah, no or we're like people from Detroit. Sorry, but. yeah, or we're the Washington Generals who always are losing to the Globetrotters. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, but it, that was the sense I got in reading the book was that this was like people knew this. It was good you know good journalism it was good research people were mostly there wasn't pushback i mean not how we know it now if if hardly any and it was just kind of like a thing that people knew um i, I guess before before we continue you said you wanted to mention something about addison and uh west yeah i wanted to go back because um yeah and so you also said a great thing i've loved our correspondence by the way Xavier. um yeah, same same uh but um but organized defense didn't really start. There were some probes, but organized defense didn't really start until the early 90s. 
Um, so before it was just like scientists saying this thing's going to happen, this thing's going to happen. And then finally, one of them in the Congress said it started to happen. Um, so I love what you were saying, like, just let's work backwards. One of the reasons that Gore, it's just a tremendous accident in history of history. And sometimes I kind of think, uh, did you and your, uh, does your daughter take you guys to the Marvel movies or do you take her to the Marvel movies? We, 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 it depends on, we, yes, we see all of them. We, we, okay, both, we all enjoy them. <laughs> okay, great. So like, I, I sometimes wonder if we're in a part of the multiverse where Al Gore mysteriously doesn't become president and we're seeing just how awful that reality would be <laughs> because it's like some, it's like a beautifully designed story for Al Gore, excuse me, to become president. Um, Roger Revelle hired a man named Charles David Keeling, and he is the person from the late fifties whose measurements of of carbon dioxide prove that it's accumulating because the theory was it's probably going to accumulate uh, based on the fueling that we're using. Uh, the basic idea before that, I don't want to get too sciencey, uh, but the basic idea was that it would, even if we were burning a lot more uh, fuel that would release carbon dioxide, that the oceans would swallow it, mm. that the carbon molecules, carbon dioxide molecules would settle on the surface of the ocean and they would get into the giant churn. So the oceans are referred to, there's a great word for that, they're referred to as sinks. Similarly, trees, uh, which, as you know, taken, I can see you getting that science look, Xavier, um, trees, which take in carbon dioxide on land and turned into oxygen, they're sinks. So they're two giant sinks. Uh, and what the scientists in the 50s figured out was oceans are not going to hold it. It's just going to hang around. It's going to start heating things up very quickly. And so they had to prove that that was happening. And so Roger Revelle hired uh this man named Charles David Keeling, who was a postgraduate, who was also working in uh, California. And Ravel said a great thing about Charles David Keeling. He said, uh, he's a, Keeling's a really odd guy. He has an overwhelming desire to measure carbon dioxide. He wants to measure it in his bones. <laughs> and he wanted to measure carbon dioxide so much that like, when he was a young man in the 50s and he was measuring carbon dioxide in Yosemite, he looks up and there's a mule deer which apparently is a, a kind of deer that looks like a mule, I guess. Uh, and the mule deer had grabbed his carbon dioxide notebook, and so he's chasing the deer out of his out of his tent and across Yosemite to get his uh, his carbon dioxide notebook ba back. And then when his wife is giving birth to their first child, he is up on the roof while she's in the delivery room measuring carbon dioxide. Uh, so like he had this overwhelming desire to measure carbon dioxide. And within about four or five years of starting this chart that's called the Keeling curve, it was clear that we that the carbon dioxide was not being absorbed by the oceans and it was accumulating in the atmosphere. And so it was probably going to start causing heating. Uh, Ravel thought, again, that there would be violent effects by about 2006. Um, Ravel then went to teach at Harvard at the, at the Kennedy school of population studies. And then Al Gore was there. Mm -hmm. And so he told Al Gore about what he had learned about carbon dioxide and about Keeling's curve. And so when Al Gore had the first, uh, Washington hearings about carbon dioxide, about the greenhouse effect, the first witness he called was Roger Ravel which is a beautiful story of education working just the way it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. So we had a number of reasons to have uh, great head starts. Um, that's why I was smiling when you mentioned Al Gore, like that should have worked 
to everyone's advantage. Um, but uh, do you mind if I go back to Edison and, yeah, and Westinghouse yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, Tesla? Because when you asked that, when we were when we were communicating by email, um, I thought it was kind of a great question. One reason that I begin the book with them is that a electricity is a totally new factor, right? We uh, there's a, there was a phrase that was current uh, when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, uh, future shock. Have you ever heard that? There was a man named Alvin Toffler who wrote a book called Future Shock. The basic idea is that it probably wasn't that different to be an Elizabethan uh, than it was to be a citizen of Rome in like 300 or even 500 after the titular fall of Rome. Um, just because Rome continued just under new management uh, after what they considered the fall, right? Um so uh, so there wasn't that much change. It wouldn't have said that they would, a Roman would recognize life in Elizabethan London and, and a, someone, an Elizabethan would recognize Roman life, uh, but that the pace of change had wildly accelerated over the last two centuries. And one of the giant changes is electricity. Uh, electricity is, it's been measured. Uh, Franklin is interested in it. He proves that the electricity that you can generate and store in primitive batteries that were called Leyden jars or Leyden jars, he proves that they are the same thing as lightning, which was not known before him. It's like that could be something else. Um, and then uh, Steve Jobs had this great phrase, the, the computer and design pioneer Steve Jobs, that you need a killer app to sell things. Mm -hmm. So... The early Apple computers, they sold to people who loved um, really elegant tech, but they weren't moving that well. And the killer app for Apple products, I mean, the iPod ended up saving the company, mm -hmm. but the killer app before that was uh, laser printing. Mm. Um, it's, it's a standard thing for us to pick the fonts and to put things in bold or underline. That was science fiction uh, when Macintosh first came in. And so desktop publishing and laser printers were the killer app for Apple. Uh, the killer app for electricity was, first, it was the telegraph. Because electricity moves just a little bit slower than the speed of light, which is amazing. Uh, so Moore says, hey, I could use that to... This is how Marshall McLuhan described it uh, a century later, century and a bit, century and a butt later, as they'd say in the military. Um, for the first time, the speed of a message could outrun the messenger. Hmm. Like all the times before, I guess you could use pigeons, right? But, <laughs> but in all the eras before, a message moved as quickly as a horse rider, right? And then you can suddenly, once more, popularizes the telegraph and his difficulty popularizing it was funny and i thought a thrilling interesting way to begin the book mm -hmm. um but once you did that it allows modern communications and modern media like uh you know do you know that in america the associated press and upi those things are called the wire services mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they were using the telegraph to get news like you know there's been an earthquake in san francisco and we know about it in new york a few minutes later that's a shocking development for people. Yeah. So, uh, so Morse sells the telegraph. The, Morse uses the telegraph to make electricity seem valuable to people. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that made electricity or the telegraph interesting in England was the telegraph was used to catch a murderer. Uh, a man had murdered uh, his lover in Slough, which is where the British office is set. 
killed her, poisoned her, just got on the train from Slough to go back to London and thought he had brought it off so well that he bought a first class ticket, uh, a murderer named John Towell. But uh, some people said, hey, there's a guy wearing a very long black coat. He just murdered someone here in Slough. What can we do? He just got on the train and they had a telegraph. Mm -hmm. And so they telegraphed to London, grabbed the guy in the long black coat and you know, it was a big tabloid story. And after he was hung, after he was killed, um, people would point at the telegraph wires that were then going up all over England. And they would say, them's the wires that hung John Towell. Mm -hmm. And then Edison found the second killer app that would bring electricity into everyone's homes, which is the light bulb. Um, and then that's a huge thing because you also have to burn coal to generate the electricity. And once everybody wants to have electric lights and the other products that then the people who are selling electricity use to make electricity itself something we'd rely on all day, then you have more and more coal being burned. And so, of course, you would start the story there. And then the other reason before I give the mic back to you in our Zoom exchange here um, is that I love that these three people, uh, Nikola Tesla, who is just an immigrant, not even a first-generation immigrant. He just he had just come over. And then Edison, who didn't finish high school, not because he was a bad student, but his family ran out of money. So he was homeschooled, not because his parents had funny ideas about the books that were on the syllabus, but because they just couldn't afford to pay. And then George Westinghouse is the person who makes Nikola Tesla's ideas about uh, currency generation. He actually makes them a reality. He is the kind of capitalist that we love in that he has unemployment insurance. If workers are going to let go, he has a Westinghouse-run unemployment thing that will pay them when they're laid off. And he also is giving them mortgages that are backed up by the company. A, a, the kind of capitalist who actually is working on for the benefit of workers and also for the benefit of customers. Um, he ended up during one of the many downturns in that era, uh, they took the company away from him just the way they took uh, Edison's company away from him. But these three people were able to make the lives of everyone better, even though there was this terrible side effect that we're dealing with now. And so I, this book, which I knew uh, from having, you know, yours, having your friends read sections of a book while you're working on it. I knew that it was thrilling and maddening uh, in different sections. And I thought it was nice that it began by reminding people of what we can do as a people. So that was the, that was the, that's why I was so happy when you asked that question by email. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that was kind of my sense of it too, was like, there's, again, that's not to say that people don't create things now. I mean, I mean, I think if you mentioned him, I mean, one of the best, I think one of the best people in 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 the later 20th century and certainly early 21st century is Steve Jobs. I mean, for mm -hmm. sure. I mean, he created so many things. Uh, I said this. I said this in a conversation recently. You know, it wasn't just well. Well, there's a problem, and how do we fix it? How do I create something to fix this? Right. Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs was a true innovator in that he created things that we didn't think we needed. I didn't I didn't think I needed an iPod. I didn't yeah. I certainly didn't think I need a tablet. I you know <laughs> there's all these things and now we can't find our lives functioning yeah. without them. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's a marvel and he he he's you know again he's 
like most folks, he's flawed and, you know, he's, he, he was flawed and he went too soon probably, but it's interesting to see how one person still in a you know digital or technological age has literally impacted basically yeah. everybody's lives on the planet directly or <laughs> indirectly. And the only, you know, when you think about that, you think about people like Edison where, yeah. you know, I, I have a, a, a light bulb on right now and my, and, and I don't even think about it. I just turn a switch on. That's it. <laughs> And, you know, all these things. So I, I do like that you started there because it's like there's a lot of creation That's right. that was that was there. And even in the middle part of the book, so we're, we were talking about uh, some of the folks there that were doing really good um, uh, study and investigation in journalism and science and trying to get at the answers. And people respected that people were doing that. And it wasn't a... um. A, a, a denial of something of well, if if this is something that I don't like or it makes me uncomfortable, I'm just going to say that you don't know how to do journalism, right? <laughs> this is, right? It's or or you know, and again, times are different, but I think that that's something that is. It's not that we need to go backwards, as some people would suggest, to the to the glory days of the '50s, but I do think it's how do you keep the spirit of being doing you know genuine authentic you know research and work and trying to and this is i think the hard part for a lot of folks uh is how do you express that or tell that story in a way that's um digestible for people without watering down any of the content which is which is really hard the presentation is is really important and we have different mediums now to do that um and so i i think that the middle part of the book is really nice because you, you're talking about, hey, there's a problem here. Huh. These these are what all the people are real. They're just realizing there's a problem, and people are investigating that, looking into that, and and kind of accepting that. And it's interesting how the denialism or 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 many of the things that happen that we know more currently that wasn't an accident or that wasn't people just being like, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that, all that research you guys did wasn't that good. No. What, when you, when you sit down and you read it, you're like, Holy shit. There, this was an organized effort yeah. to, to absolutely create an alternative narrative for various reasons. So I don't want to jump ahead, but I think that that's important to kind of say like, you know, and that's why I really enjoyed the book is that with these these things weren't that long ago, right? This wasn't that long ago. We're talking 100 years, 70 years, 50 years. And so I think it's important to kind of keep that uh, perspective. I don't know if you want to jump in there or anything, but... Um, no, no, I, no, I loved what you were saying, but I... I um, one thing about that, when uh, when people are... When people began lying about what the research was, when you were talking about the gores, and it's like, maybe the gores have funny ideas. Right, yeah, like maybe yeah. it's something that he and his dad care about, right? Or maybe it's something that vegans care about, right? Like this is the, uh, I think during the eighties when they were thinking about having an organized uh, attack on climate science, um, the phrase would have been granola crunchers. Like yeah. this is something that yeah. granola people with Birkenstocks yeah. care about this. Right. And the fascinating thing is that that also is totally wrong. Now, a great thing about Edison, and this was this is where that section of the book ends, is that it cuts right from the really dramatic story of both 
developing the light bulb and getting it to work and delivering the current that would have it so that you would have these dynamos that Edison himself had to build and then the wires that would carry it into every house and then competing with Tesla and Westinghouse for what kind of current it would be. Then it was just great to flash to him when he is in his early 80s and it's the it's 1929 and people are thanking him for changing the world. So the president is riding with Thomas Edison and Edison grew up sort of poor uh, and what he would do to make money for his family before he became an inventor is he would ride the trains and he would sell candy and newspapers on the trains and fruit. And he had become such a worldwide celebrity for like he was um, you could think of Edison as having like the power of 10 Steve Jobs. So he is like Steve Jobs to Steve Jobs cubed. Right. Because mm-hmm. um, it would be two, four. Eight, uh, 16. So he's Steve Jobs to the fourth, let's say. He's, he's Steve Jobs 16X. Um, he was so famous that if you drew Edison's face on an envelope, by the time he was about 50 or 60 and dropped it, just you drew his face and you just dropped it in the post office, they would deliver it to him. Now, I don't think Steve Jobs, I don't think anybody, Barack Obama was that famous for us, right? Probably. I don't think that Clinton maybe was that famous. Barack Obama, uh, Madonna maybe was that famous. It's hard. People, it's hard to think. People, Mickey people, Mouse. Yeah, Mickey Mouse. People did yeah. know Steve Jobs for the for the the blue jeans and the black turtleneck, though. Yeah, but like, okay, maybe <laughs> maybe Spider Man. But like Edison was that big, and oh, yeah. so when he when they were celebrating, and it's funny they weren't celebrating his birthday, they were celebrating the fiftieth anniversary of the light bulb, which everyone understood had totally changed life. So we had one kind of life before. Um, let's say December of uh, 19, uh, 1879. And then we had a different life after October 79. And so they were celebrating the golden Jubilee, the 50th birthday of Edison inventing both the electric light, but more importantly, our electrified lifestyle. And so the president rides on a special train that's been built to take Edison from a scrupulous recreation of his lab to this dinner where everybody, including the president, will be. And Edison is 82 and he realizes he's on this train. And so he grabs some newspapers and he walks up and down the train aisle saying candy and newspapers for sale. (laughs) And the president, this President Hoover says, I'll take a peach. And so like the idea that you could become such a global figure that the president is acting out your memories is shocking. And so he, he goes to this place where President Hoover is there. The heads of all the corporations are there. Madame Curie is there. And Einstein is there by radio. And he's the only person who understands what might be coming. He says, the great inventors of whom you are the greatest, I'm paraphrasing, what he says is the great inventors of technics among whom you are the greatest, have placed mankind in an entirely new situation to which it has not at all adapted itself as of yet. And that was a great way out. Isn't it great? Like he understood that like we were like, we had this new thing, total change, and maybe we don't know what to do about it. Mm. Um, It's it's, it's I mean, I I recently, it's it's off topic of sorts, but uh, I saw Oppenheimer recently and, um, you know, Edison's featured in the film and and they have that conversation of it's, I think it was, I think it's conversation with Einstein and Niels Bohr in the movie, which is we have to talk about what happens after words after the test after the bombs let loose because then the world changes and that's that's the big message and obviously with 
devastating impacts. I mean, it's a weapon of mass destruction that's been created, of course, you know, it, that wasn't known necessarily at the time, but in a positive way, and again, that, you know, Einstein is brilliant in a lot of ways. He, he could see how you change, <laughs> change the world. You do literally change the world with, with recognizing or trying how this, you know, invention or this creation that wasn't there, all those things. And it's interesting as you, as you, as you make the connecting point of, one of the negative side effects, of course, is how much we burn so yeah. much coal now. And that couldn't have maybe been as foreseen. And again, there was less significantly less people in 1900 than there is, you know, 8 billion of us today. So that's also another massive change. Huge. And just you had no reason to be burning coal that way before. And then there were other machines, but you're burning, I think, by the turn of the century. Oh, there's a great climate writer named Jeff Goodell, and he estimated in a book called Big Coal, uh, he was just using the Department of Energy figures that um, that by the turn of our century, the average American was burning 20 pounds of coal a day, mm. just charging your iPod, you know, keeping your Wi-Fi going, you know, keeping the flat screen going. Mm. It's a huge amount of coal. And the average person would have been, you know, half pound of coal, quarter pound of coal before that. That's just because we are so dependent on electricity now. Um, I just, I love Einstein. I love what you were saying about him and Oppenheimer. So I've been reading about him and I was reading his autobiographical notes and he's just an, a thrilling figure. And I just want to read something because mm-hmm. when I listen, one of the reasons I love podcasts like yours is that you get random data and you'll even forget where it comes from, but you'll remember a great quote. And here's something that Einstein wrote about his childhood. Uh, he's going to call himself fairly precocious, so forgive him for that. But if you're Einstein, you have the right to say you were fairly precocious. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> when I was a fairly precocious young man, I became thoroughly impressed with the futility of the hopes and strivings that chased most people restlessly through life. Moreover, I soon discovered the cruelty of that chase, which in those years was much more carefully covered up by hypocrisy and glittering words than is the case today. By the mere existence of their stomach, everyone was condemned to participate in that chase. (laughs) That's just so great. So, yeah, he's the person who sees, okay, this is what we have to do. Let's consider what the costs of it are. Um, So, yeah, so uh, when we were talking before about Gore and uh, Gore Sr. and maybe granola crunchers and Birkenstock, the Birkenstock uh, marketing share, right? the people who would wear Birkenstocks while they were eating granola in the 80s, that that was their idea that this was going to be bad. Um, It was always an establishment idea, and that shocked me. So um, first person to talk about why the earth is warm at all, because like Mars, you know, is chilly. So I guess this will be the second really sciencey thing I say, but this will also stick in listeners' minds the way it sticks in everyone's mind, I think, when they first hear this. So do you know what the Goldilocks problem is or the yeah, there's, oh, let's a, hear certain, let's there's, hear a, there's yeah. a certain um, there's a certain window or a certain space where you have to have you know the right temperature or the right kind of distance or things like that. Is that right? Absolutely right. So basically, you need a certain amount of carbon dioxide to retain heat. Um, so Mars has very little carbon dioxide. It has very thin atmosphere. So when the when sunlight hits the surface of Mars, it just bounces back out. It heats up the surface and the infrared blah blah right just goes back up and so it's chilly yeah exactly (laughs) yes (laughs) so it is um it can get to like i don't know 50 below on the martian surface it looks very placid and deserty but it's freezing and then um i think venus has 97 
times our atmosphere and it's boiling. It's like, you know, I don't know, 700 to 900 degrees. But Professor Jim Hansen, who's uh, an even greater climate scientist than Roger Revelle and is one of the book's heroes, he pointed out that um, – that uh that lead melts on um lead melts on venus like their their oceans turn to puddles and that you could make pizza on the surface of venus you could just leave you could just leave pizza dough there and it would actually go into pizza um so that's like uh too too hot is venus too cold is mars and we have just the reason that life is on this planet we have just the right amount of carbon dioxide so that we keep in just the right amount of infrared radiation so there can be growing things. Um, the idea of that, so by the way, one of the one of the first proofs of the greenhouse effect was looking at Mars and Venus. So there was a there's a great science writer from the 80s named Jonathan Weiner who won the Pulitzer Prize for science writing. And he said that there were a whole generation of American climate scientists, including Jim Hansen, who were radicalized by Venus, because what Venus has is a runaway greenhouse effect, which is there's way too much carbon dioxide. It will probably, you know, it will never clear up. And so heat, again, it's in the, you know, 800, 900 degrees Fahrenheit range. Um, so there was a, there was a scientist um, who was working for Napoleon in the 1820s. And he became, um, he became the governor. He became the head of the, when Napoleon went to conquer Egypt, he brought all of the best researchers, the best scientists and mathematicians, he brought them to Egypt with him. And um, I'm just going to, I want to, I want to bring up in my book uh, his name because I don't want to, uh, since this is being podcast, I don't want to misspell <laughs> this guy's name. So uh, rather, I don't want to mispronounce his name. So give me a second. Um, great. Okay. So um, Fourier, is that how you would pronounce it? Uh, Jean-Baptiste Joseph Fourier. Um, so he's just a leading mathematician. He is brought on the the science expedition that Napoleon brings with him when he is conquering Egypt around the turn of the 19th century. And while he's there, he's just fascinated. It's desert, right? And about half of Napoleon's force, they, they succumb to heat is the way you would put it then. And so Fourier is curious, why are we retaining heat? He doesn't know it's carbon dioxide, but he knows that there is something that's keeping heat in here. And again, he is he ends up becoming a baron. He is a leading scientist of the era. And in 1824, he publishes a paper saying, there must be something... Uh, we ended up translating it as a greenhouse, but it must be like a glass box that is designed to retain heat or like the lid on a pot. Mm. Um, then in the 1850s, a man named John Tyndall, who ends up becoming the head of the laboratories at the Royal Institution in England, so absolute establishment scientist, he's like, okay, I see that Fourier said something is keeping the heat here, and he said it 35 years ago. What is it? And so he examines all the available gases and he realizes that the two things that trap heat are this actually became very sciencey didn't it Xavier yeah I love, um, it. I love yeah. it I love it um it was water vapor and carbon dioxide and he was thrilled because he had learned no one had known what those things were so in his journal he wrote you can hear how thrilled he was he was a mountaineer John Tyndall and it sounds like someone who's climbed to the top of a mountain what he writes is experimented all day the subject is entirely in my hands that's May of uh, 1859 
And what he said, he compared carbon dioxide and water vapor to a blanket that was necessary for all life in England. Strip that blanket for even a single night, and uh, the sun would rise on a nation in the iron grip of frost, mm. right? All the heat would dribble away. Uh, and then in 1894, another entirely establishment figure, not someone wearing Birkenstocks, a man named Svante Arrhenius, and he would become the first Swedish recipient of the Nobel Prize, and then like Tyndall, comically enough, um, he would lead the laboratories for the Nobel Institution. And he was like, okay, it's carbon dioxide. What would happen if we lowered it? We'd go back towards the ice ages. And if we doubled it, uh, our heat would increase by about four degrees Celsius. And he does all that by hand. It takes a year. And he said they were the most tedious of his life's calculations. <laughs> So it's it's so interesting how so many people, or not so many, but a good enough or or a good amount of people, are noticing this problem from from many many years before the twentieth century. Absolutely, and for for Arrhenius, remember they're also just discovering something. It's just a thrill. It's like when you're it's like when you yeah. get a video game. It's like if you get Skyrim and you're figuring out how the world works in Skyrim, right? Or the first times you're playing Halo and you're realizing how to drive the Warthog and stuff like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like they're the ones who are roughing it out. So for Arrhenius, who's living in Sweden, at first he's excited about it because he thinks in the far future, it'll be a warmer Sweden. And he has some friends who don't want to wait, and they're also scientists. And so one of his friend's ideas was, let's take some coal mines that, you know, they're not producing anymore, but they still have combustible elements. And let's start fires in those in those old coal mines, and they will just belch out carbon dioxide smoke. And so we can begin to make those summers longer and the winter shorter here in Sweden because it's just too cold. So they don't see it as a problem. And Arrhenius calculates that about, I don't know, 90% of the carbon dioxide is going to be swallowed by the ocean. So it will take thousands of years for, for us to get actual temperature changes. A weird thing about Arrhenius, which was also fun, is he's a little bit, it may be that being super intelligent like Einstein or Arrhenius inclines you towards pessimism. Because one of the things that characterized Arrhenius is that he was, whenever people write about him, contemporaries and historians, they say he was an optimist, even by the standards of his pre-World War I era. But something about World War I made him understand something about the kinds of creatures we can be. And so the last book that he wrote before he died, uh, 1925, it was called Chemistry and Modern Life. And again, he's totally establishment. He's uh, he's much more establishment than a U.S. senator uh, both Gore and his father were U.S. senators. Um, by the 1920s, the Times referred to him as probably the most distinguished and famous uh, chemist uh, alive, right? Um, uh, like an unbelievably just completely charismatic and uh, intelligent and establishment figure. Um Anyway, after World War One, he had lost his faith in non-Americans and humans' ability to govern themselves rationally. And so one of the things he said that I always think of 
A, he understood that the future's wars would be over things like oil, uh, with states that lack casting lustful glances toward their neighbors who happen to have more than they can use, which I think about all the time when I read certain kinds of news stories. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is, he said, it's obvious in the future that we're going to have to prevent national egotism, which is what he means just by you know nationalism, and the profit-seeking industries from determining the proper use of our natural resources. Uh, that was great. So again, they're keeping these warnings like Einstein saying, we, you know, you inventors like you and you're the greatest inventor have placed us in a situation to which we have not at all adapted ourselves yet. Or even Arrhenius, this unbelievable optimist saying, you know, we're going to have to stop determining these things the way we've been determining it now. Big corporations and nations might not be capable of making the best decisions for our shared future. I wonder, you know, I have a, I have a, a kind of mixed view of of uh, of activism of sorts. I think it's great in many ways, and I think a lot of the times it just becomes performative signaling of sorts as well. But I wonder if there if there was some type of activism that was happening at this period, you know, because these guys seem very proactive, right? Hey, look, we're figuring this out. Hey, this is going to become more problematic. You know what? We should probably get ahead of things and maybe do huh. something about it now to not make sure this happens. I wonder if in a space huh. like this, if we had had some pretty good activism there, whatever that would have looked like, you know, you know, turn of the century, 20th century, I wonder if that could have pushed it a little bit more aggressively or a little bit more forcefully to say, let's be proactive about this. Not that, you know, the United States is a champion of doing things proactively, but uh, <laughs> a lot of the times very reactive to things or we got to, you know, make a bunch of mistakes and then fix it. But I wonder what, what that could have been. Um, but, but I guess, but even that's just a, that's just a thought. No, it's but, a great, it's, it, that's the kind of thing I, I mean, it, the reason I didn't say anything was the kind of thing I was thinking the whole time I was working on the book. So I was curious where you were going to go. Please don't stop. Yeah, no, I was, I was curious about that because what, what that would have done, maybe it would, it would have changed anything, but it is interesting that we get to, again, I, I'm still kind of stuck with this like sixties and seventies where none of this was, hmm, I, I mean, what you write in the book and, and, and elsewhere, is, there's not a lot of resistance or pushback. Uh, one of the things you talk about is, I mean, even a lot of people don't know that. I think people know this now, but a lot of people know this. I mean, you know, it was Nixon who did the Clean Air Act <laughs> and, you know, installing the EPA. And there was this whole greenwashing period of you got to recycle and don't throw shit on the ground and don't throw things out the car window when you're driving and yeah. and all of these things. And, of course, you had the energy crisis in the 70s. So. I guess, you know, maybe it wouldn't have made an impact. Maybe it would have. Who knows? But I guess in this, you know, in these two decades, you know, 60s and 70s, um, <laughs> I wonder how much of all of – there. Were, I mean, there were some good campaigns. I mean, yeah. there's some pretty good campaigns. How, how much of this do you think was – I don't want to say enough because that sounds like, well, none of it was really enough, yeah. as we can tell. But – I mean, how much do you think, as with the time and resource we had, particularly in the sixties and seventies? I mean, is there really anything else that people could have done to to talk about things and get the kind of, you know, the word out and and have a kind of cultural shift about how we treat our role in the environment and um, things like that? The reason that I keep laughing is that um, so the, Nixon didn't like. There's a great irony and 
the story is all irony and there are almost like fairy tale aspects to the story. And I'll tell you one of the fairy tale aspects now, but with that cliffhanger that we can move the discussion towards, um, we did do sort of amazing stuff like Nixon. Nixon is the president who's done the most for the environment, probably in history. And he didn't care about the environment. Um, he sure, didn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, um, he wore dress shoes to the beach, right? Like he just didn't care. And uh, when he signed in the EPA in 1970, um, like the New York times and their, you know, greet the new year op-ed, they said it was one of the few bright notes in an otherwise uniquely dismal year because we were mired in uh, that. That was the official, that was the verb term of art. We were mired in Vietnam and mm-hmm. there was unrest uh, in every American city. But here's this nice thing, which is we have the EPA. We're going to have a, we're going to have an agency designed and we have the environmental protection act and we're going to have an agency. And that same year, uh, Nixon is reassuring two executives from Ford motor companies from Ford Motor Company that the environment, they want to go back and live like a bunch of damn dirty animals. Uh, what they're interested in is destroying the system. And he's saying to his aides, don't do anything really. What matters is not the action, but the message we get out. Just keep me out of trouble on environmental issues. And the reason he was there was because Americans forced their leaders, their, their elected representatives to protect the environment. The environment had gotten, it was thrilling and super disturbing to write the history of the world. Uh, and I mostly focused on America and England um, between when we started burning huge amounts of coal and gasoline and when we started to regulate uh what we would do with the byproducts of that. And that's the fairy tale thing that's coming up in a moment. Um, but there was immediate, like there had never been smog in, in Los Angeles. Now we think of LA as smog, like that's the, that word didn't really exist until 1905. It was coined by some people who were trying to clean up London because there was so much coal being burned. Like what we think of as like pea soup fog in London, Mm -hmm. it's just sulfur dioxide. It is just coal residue, Mm -hmm. uh, which is bad in any number of ways. So 1905, I think, is the first appearance of that word. Uh, The Times tried to, you know how in Mean Girls, they tried to make the word fetch happen? (laughs) Um, They tried to make the word smaze happen because they thought that it was like it was smoke and haze so that made more sense maze but they you know smog had already taken over um first time that you actually LA was such a clean city that in 1928 when Fitzgerald wrote a story about the film industry about Hollywood it ends with someone getting in their car slamming the door and driving into the the everlasting hazeless sunlight of Los Angeles which would have been like a punchline within about 20 years uh during World War II Los Angeles became, it just went into the defense contracting business to help uh, resist fascism in Europe. And uh, I think it swole, swole. It became a swole city of, it went from 1,500 factories to about 8,500 factories. Mm-hmm. And so uh, historians have actually picked the day. The smog was first seen, I think, in early July, I think July 8th, 1943. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first, uh, the first really big pollution disaster was in 1849 in a town called Denora in Pennsylvania, uh, where there were these steel factories and there was what's called an inversion effect. And the smoke, the carbon was forced down to street level and you couldn't see anything. And 20 people died over a weekend. 
And then there was in uh, 1852, I think, in London, I think this was in the Crown, um, about 12,000 people all told in a three-month period died because of the worst... Yeah, the worst smoke disaster in London. Mm -hmm. Uh, So people began to demand that their cities be cleaned. I think in 63 in New York, um, I think 450 people were killed during the Thanksgiving holiday. Mm -hmm. And so in that same year, the people who were responsible for trying to clean up America, they had their annual meeting. And I think the director of health and human services foresaw that you'd have to have cities under glass domes and people would have to wear like gas masks when they were going around or they would have to live indoors like moles. So people demanded that the air be cleaned up and that it was amazing. There had never been, there'd never been organized response to pollution. That's why Nixon was forced to change. Um, Here's where the fairy tale aspect comes in. So when Ravel and other scientists noticed that the carbon dioxide, when they understood that it was not going to be absorbed by the oceans, um, journalists were following the story fairly closely. Uh, They were following it so closely that, that uh, by I think 59, the times could say that, what was called the greenhouse effect was one of the preeminent worries for climatologists of that period. Not like a small thing, not like someone worrying if vaccines are bad, not like a crazy person anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to apologize for your listeners who don't trust vaccines. Um, I'm teasing, but um, but it was just like it was one of the preeminent uh, subject matter interests of climatologists in the period. Um, then all these measurements came in. And in 1960, that showed that the Earth had actually been cooling for about 20 years. And the heating had been pretty immediate. Now, they, what the basic temperature record suggests is that from, let's say, the first half of the 1800s, even the amounts of coal and wood that we were burning then had begun to change the climate. Um, and then as we were burning more and more coal, uh, it began to accelerate. But around 1940, it stopped, basically. And so all these people who were saying, hey, this is going to be a problem, and they were pinpointing when we were going to, I mean, Ravel said violent effects by, let's say, 2006. Uh, Plass, Plass and Plass's colleagues were saying, we'll probably begin to find it measurable by the mid-80s. That made my hair stand up when I read that. Um but by the 1940s, it turned out when they went back and looked at all the data, the, the world had started cooling. Now, again, it had been so warm that this was a sort of a wild thing to see just how long this problem has been perceived by our you know, great-grandparents and grandparents. Mm-hmm. Cover of the New York Times, America in longest heating spell since the revolution. Uh, you know, this, you know, the, the charts, they document a 25 year rise. And that headline, front page of the New York Times, just to see how long we've had this problem is next to a story about, um, trying to close speakeasies, trying to close Al Capone speakeasies, like the Untouchables movie. Uh-huh. And it's also next to a headline. This is 1933. Germans promised to end attacks on Jews and the Reich. Mm-hmm. So, the issue of climate change is also a headline is a headline story along with prohibition and uh, and the rise of nazism um when the 40 when the stories came in that we had been cooling for 40 years the interest around the story around climate change began to diminish mm. but it turns out one of the reasons that we've been cooling from the 40s on was that there was so much pollution that the sunlight couldn't pierce it. And so here's the fairy tale aspect. Once we began to clean up the sky, 
um, the warming began to resume and was resuming at a much quicker pace. Mm-hmm. That's like living in a fairy tale, wow. right? Wow. wow. That's so wild. Yeah. so wild. <laughs> uh, so it was great to have clean air. So one of the, um, the idea, sulfur dioxide is, um, is what gets expelled by volcanoes. So do you know, have you heard about the year without a summer? I think it's 1816. So there was a, there was a volcano like around, I think it's around where Java is. It was called Mount Tambora. And it went up in 1815. It was one of the biggest volcanic eruptions in, at least in like uh, recorded history. Um, and there was so much sulfur dioxide, which is sulfur dioxide is just like little tiny chips of sulfur, right? They're called aerosols, mm-hmm. but they're shiny. And so they reflect the sun back. They stop, they form like kind of a mantle. And so the sun can't come through and it just bounces back up. Mm-hmm. And so 1816, a year after when the smoke had gone all over the world, was internationally known as the year without a summer. So I think 200,000 people died across Europe. They were people were eating moss in Switzerland. They were eating clovers in New England. Um, in 1816, uh, the writers who were associated with Shelley and Byron, they there was no summer, so they just went indoors in kind of a gloomy mood. And they invented the horror genre because it was so weird not having normal summer. That's where that's when Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. And it's when Byron's personal physician wrote a novel called The Vampire, which gives us the idea of Dracula uh-huh. and vampire diaries and all those things. So the the horror genre is a result of the year without a summer. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that's sulfur dioxide. That is the pollution that was you know, obstructing the sunlight, let's say from, well, for a while, but especially from the forties until the clean air act and the clean air acts around the world began to dissipate the sulfur dioxide from the atmosphere. Weirdly, uh, geoengineering is the, is the sort of interesting word for trying to have a science solution, just like an overall quick and dirty science solution to the problems of climate change. Uh, the the geoengineering solution that we're most likely to see, it's the one people have talked about for the longest, is have a fleet of airplanes go up into the stratosphere and dump millions of tons of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. Uh, and it would work like a volcano. It would bounce the sun's light back for a year and it would cool us down. Mm-hmm. So we would uh, artificially introduce those same effects into the sky and it would work. It would cool us down. Um, and it would, the drawback is the sky would be white for the time that the sulfur dioxide was in the air. But amusingly, so you sometimes at one point in the book, uh, the narrator, me, but the, the, the book observes that it's kind of clear that God might not want a solution to global warming because <laughs> during the, during the early nineties, when the organized, uh, organized denial, when the defense begins to take shape, uh, a volcano called Mount Pinatubo went up mm. in 93. And it just, you know, at the same time that we wanted to say, hey, this is going to happen, the Earth's temperature was cooled by a degree. Mm. And James Hansen, who again is one of the heroes of the second half of the book, um, he was thrilled because he could then test his equipment. It said, you know, his equipment said the same equipment that was saying that we were going to see you know, a degree of uh, one degree Fahrenheit of warming, let's say by 2005 or 2010, it said that if we have uh, 
if we have a volcanic eruption the size of Pinatubo, it should clear, it, it should cool the it should cool the surface temperature down by about one degree. And then after a year it will dissipate and it'll go right back up. And sure enough, his prediction was exactly uh lived out. And it's one of those things that's interesting to watch the deniers, one of the main deniers, he's not he doesn't come up in the book as much as some of the spectacular people that you and I like, like S. Fred Singer. But uh, a denier named Patrick Michael said, this is going up as a smokescreen. You know, when uh, when the temperature doesn't cool down, people like Hansen are going to say that isn't what we said. And it went exactly the way their devices said they would. And then Patrick Michaels didn't come forward and say, oh, I was wrong. He just moved on to something else. Hmm. That's incredible. I do want to come to deniers, but I guess to kind of lead into that. Um, I guess the, one of the things, so we've been talking about this stuff in the 60s and 70s. And when I talk to, um, how do I put this kindly? When I talk to people that are a little bit older and typically tend to be more on the conservative side of things, uh, I'm thinking of a few people in my head, actually, at the moment. They'll say, yeah, you know, I remember in the 70s. I remember late 60s, 70s. I remember, I remember hearing all this. I remember all this stuff. And and we were okay with it, you know. And you know, I read the Lorax too, and you know, that was cool. And you know, like, um, I I I've I remember hearing Al Gore. But we've been hearing about this for 55, 60 years that you know the earth's gonna just, you know, kind of burn up, or oh my gosh, we gotta move to high ground because we're gonna get flooded and you know, I'm just tired of hearing about this. And I'm just thinking this is just a kind of leftist kind of propaganda to scare people so we can do cap and trade and take more of my money, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and then when you start to show evidence, I think some people, if you show them actually hard evidence, they'll be like, oh, shit, I didn't realize it was that bad. But a lot of people will say, yeah, well, you know, those numbers, I can't trust them because of this and this. And, you know, nothing's 97% of scientists. Everyone's just kind of group think, you know, you hear these people. And so I guess where, so I certainly want to talk about Fred Singer. That's a fascinating story. I, w- I had no idea about any of that. And that story was fascinating. So I want to get into all the weeds of that. But how do we, we start to get, I think, this kind of sense of, okay, there's some denial because it's it's not it's not happening catastrophically as we think it is like we read used to read in science fiction novels or later we see in films and interestingly you start this section by mentioning the the idea of of cancer and cigarettes where everyone Mm -hmm. used to you know smoke and then you say well you know it causes cancer and cigarettes are terrible for you and that there was this industry of saying no 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 because you know we we there's a big industry with tobacco and that whole thing um, so how do you see, I guess we can start there and we can get into some of the specifics with denial, uh, climate change deniers, but, um, how, how are there similarities and or differences with, with climate change denial and some of the links, the, the negative health effects of, of cigarette smoking? Um, I kind of love what you were saying. I want to actually go back to what you were saying about, um, about how people would say that essentially we overpromised. Yeah. 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 Um, I just want to um, I want to get the exact quote on this. So I'm actually opening my book because what the way this guy phrased it I thought was so fascinating. Um and it may be um it may be something that is yeah, it's in actually the uh the notes to the book. So the source notes to the book, 
there were so many. They actually are twice as long as the book itself. Mm. And so they're online at the parrotandtheigloo.com. And you don't need a password or anything. Just go there and check. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the one of the brilliant lawyers who was who were they hired the best available legal talent to build a denial strategy for tobacco, which ended up becoming the denial strategy, comically enough, ended up becoming the denial strategy for uh, global warming for climate change. Um, and one of the lawyers said, look, all Western countries have an adversarial strategy. They have an adversarial structure. But in America, you have the most adversarial structure. Like the minute someone says A, someone stands up and loudly says Z. And so we can use that to our advantage, basically. Mm-hmm. So when people would say, you know, we were promised that it would be, it would happen rapidly and it would be terrible. A, that is just a problem with uh one of the one of the great quotes that I began to encounter once I realized I was going to write this story is uh, a professor I think named Jacoby at MIT, a professor of economics. He said, "Look, if you wanted to come up with a problem that human institutions can't deal with, you couldn't do a better one than global warming." Uh, and then in the 2010s, the the head of the Yale Center for Climate Communications, because it's just what you were saying, like people began to wonder, why can't we get this data out? And so Yale actually has a discipline like English or, you know, study of you know, Russian history. They also have the Yale School of Climate Change Communication. And that gentleman said, uh, there's, there's, it's hard to think of a subject that works against our brain wiring more efficiently than climate change. And to me, what was funny is this: the issue is so circular that you could have two authorities at two basically Ivy League schools, MIT and Yale, saying the exact same thing in a 30-year period without realizing that they were quoting each other, uh, basically. Um, the scientists themselves, what they said was, so let me give you an example of just how accurate the scientists were. What they said was just, it would make things shittier basically, right? Uh, It would raise the temperature not by 20 or 30 degrees the way it would be in what used to be called a disaster movie, in like the Poseidon Adventure or the Towering Inferno, which were movies that were current around the time that what was called the greenhouse effect was making its way back into newspapers. Um, What they would say about it is not that it's going to be flaming. It's just going to, it's going to be three or four or five degrees higher and that is really, really bad. At that, at that, at that temperature, you begin having uh, the the um, seasonal ice up around the North Pole will begin to melt. Right, so that is bad for the creatures up there. But also, one of the things that keeps it is like a fairy tale, right? One of the things that keeps the Earth cool is so. In summer, you know, we're in mid-August now, right? You're wearing a black T-shirt right now. If you go outside at noon. If you then touch that T-shirt after a few minutes, it's going to be quite warm because black as a color absorbs heat. If you wear a white T-shirt, which has what's called a high albedo, it's the same. I didn't know we'd be doing this much sciencey stuff. Um, uh, albedo is the I'm same. Pulling it out of like you. <laughs> yeah. um, it acts as kind of a mirror. So if you're wearing a white T-shirt, it's why people wear white T-shirts in the summer. Sunlight hits it and it bounces back off. And so if you're thinking about the Earth, think about you know, think about if you are taking a satellite picture, think about how the top and the bottom are all white, all those glaciers, all that snow, yeah. it is bouncing a certain amount of solar radiation back into space. 
when it begins to melt, right, um, it melts either to soil, which is dark, so it has a low albedo, or it melts, that would be in the, in the, in the Antarctic, or in the Arctic, it melts to water, since seasonal ice is just ice flows on water. Those both have low albedo, and so they begin to heat up, so they begin to melt the ice next to them faster. And so... Um, I liked comparing it to a famous phrase from Hemingway's first novel, Sun Also Rises. There's a couple who used to be rich and who now are broke. And someone says, how did you go bankrupt? And the husband and the couple answers two ways, gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> and that's kind of how warming begins to work, which is you're melting a little bit, a little bit, and then suddenly it begins to go fast. So just to see how accurate the predictions were and how accurate they were on a time scale. So basically what they're talking about is raises of, let's say, one to four or five degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, a Nobel laureate named Samuel Chu, who was the head of energy first Nobel laureate to be in a cabinet, U.S. cabinet. He was Secretary of Energy under President Obama. Mm -hmm. He gave a great speech after he left government, and he couldn't really get the changes made that he wanted to get made. But he said, uh, look, we can sort of adapt up to, we are just, we are locked in. You know, is it too late? I don't know. Someone asked him at this public speech, is it too late yet? He said, I don't know. We just keep digging deeper into the hole. And we're you now we're guaranteed we're on a pace where we're guaranteed to have two, three, you know, two, three, four degrees Fahrenheit uh, of extra warmth, which is bad. It's just shittier. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's especially bad in terms of climate justice. If you can't have an air conditioner, or you can't get out of a hot city, especially bad for people who don't have those means. Right. It's also bad for water. Like I read today in the LA Times that you're not going to, not that it matters that much. I myself don't care about lawn care. I'm from New York City and it's always seemed weird, that fetishy thing about your postage size strip of park. <laughs> you get that in Maryland, right? Yes, we do. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> but, uh, but you can't use water for that anymore, right? So you begin to have water becomes very, very precious, but you can still adapt to it. What Chu said is we're now at a point where we might begin to lock in four or five or six degrees of change. And and that, I love the phrase he used, that is really non-adaptable bad. Because even six degrees, then you're not going to have enough water, let's say, for the West Coast, right? Or growing seasons will be totally screwed up, right? Or um, there, will, there will be many more mosquitoes passing along many more diseases, right? Or just life will be tremendously unpleasant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, we'll have more wildfires, right? We will have more flooding. So you only need to have very small changes basically. Uh, but but in terms of how accurate their predictions have been, so in 1979, the science, what they were saying in the 50s was, we're going to keep measuring this. And if we've had 20 or 30 years more of continual rise, remember that guy, Charles David Keeling, who chased the mule deer and who was up measuring carbon dioxide while his wife was giving birth? <laughs> um, if his curve shows just a a steady rise of carbon dioxide, which it began instantly. It never went down, right? We were just accumulating carbon dioxide. If it's continuing to accumulate and, you know, we are getting warmer, you know, by inches, let's say every year, every decade, then we will begin to have proof. And so by the later 70s, the National Academy of Sciences, that's like uh, our preeminent, uh, sort of like our royal institution. 1977, they have their first big report on climate change. And it's like 270 pages. And it is the result of now 20 years of attention. 
And they say, pretty likely it's going to happen. And we can't really wait to be sure. We are pretty sure, but we have to begin taking action now. It's June of 1977 because it takes a generation to change to new energy sources. And if we decide to wait until the effects are all felt, for all practical purposes, the die will already have been cast. And then in the two years between 77 and 79, my math is very solid too, right? It's two years between 77 and 79. There are a bunch of reports that come in. Uh, and there's one from uh, remember the Manhattan Project? We're talking about Oppenheimer, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of those physicists reformed or people like them, and they became a group called Jason that began to advise the military and just the government in general on issues of national defense. Mm -hmm. And they took on this issue in the spring of 79, and they said, yeah, this is going to happen. And so the White House asked the National Academy of Sciences okay, we need to know if this is really going to happen because we've had a lot of reports. Can you go over all the evidence, get fresh eyes, get them together and tell us, is this thing coming? And so they met for this special session. They had a special group. It was known as the Charney Panel after the scientist Jewel Charney, who was also from MIT. And he was someone who wouldn't have believed in climate change even five years earlier. He said, anyone who claims they can tell you what the climate is going to be doing more than a few weeks in advance is practicing necromancy. <laughs> but the studies were very solid, and they were like the jury that returns a quick verdict. In late July of 1979, they reported to the White House. Uh, the results of this panel will be comforting to scientists, but disturbing to policymakers. Uh, if the carbon dioxide increase continues, uh, this group finds no reason to believe that climate changes won't result and no reason to believe those changes will be negligible. And so some of the Jason scientists were briefing lawmakers that same year, 1979, and the lawmakers said, you know, it's 1979. When will these effects be felt? And scientists say, well, 40 years, which would be 2019, right, right around now. And the lawmakers said, well, get back to us in 39. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the people who say, like, we were promised it would be spectacular. No, this has been moving at exactly the pace that the scientists told us it would move at. Like, they told us that the signature would be legible by the late 80s. And it was in uh, the early summer, two days into summer of 1988, that, that that man I keep referring to as a personal hero, and he's a hero to anybody who knows anything about climate change. And for people who read this book, he will be a hero to them because modest, charming, very, very strong, and had to be willing to uh, resist attacks on his character, attacks on his credibility, and the kind of person who says the same thing in every room, basically, is a, a good way to think about him. Uh, he stood up and said, or he sat down, he was at a congressional hearing, and he said what scientists were willing to say in private, but that nobody is willing to say in public, which is, this is June 23rd, 1988, uh, the greenhouse effect has been detected and it is changing our climate now. And if you look on the graphs, of course, he was quite correct. So if you have the family members or friends who say the scientists have been wrong or they've overpromised. It's kind of the people who are trying to popularize it or people who are trying to make them look bad, who made it seem as if they've overpromised. They've been tight as a drum since, let's say, 56. Mm. Wow. I think that's that's important. I'm very happy you spelled all that out because it is a, a kind of like the, what was the phrase you used? It, it's happening 
uh, slowly and then all at once, or what was it? Yeah, or? it's it's Hemingway's thing. It's Hemingway's great definition. It's a dialogue line. How did you go bankrupt? Two ways: gradually, <laughs> then suddenly. Because it's just like you know that when your finances have gone bad. Like, right. okay, I'm not paying Netflix, but everything else is great. We're going to restaurants twice a week. I bought my daughter the new uh, the new Cannondale bike she wanted, mm-hmm. and then like it's a you know it's a year later. All of a sudden, every bill you haven't paid comes due at once, and you're yeah. just swamped. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. no, yeah. no, it's, it's it's a great it's a great line. Okay, so I want to get to uh, Fred Singer. What a fascinating story. I will, I will give you as much runway here as you want. I mean, wow. So talk about his evolution. I mean, I, I was, I was okay, so I'm reading the book, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, okay, I, I can kind of see where this is going. He starts out, you know, he's kind of on, you know, on the good side here. He's like, yeah, 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 this is a problem. Okay, yeah, you know, he's trying to work for this. Okay, and then, okay, this is going to take a turn. <laughs> Then out of left fucking field, we get the moons and the unification church, <laughs> which I was already familiar with. I, yeah. I'm familiar with, with yeah. this cult, but I was just like, wait, what? Yeah. How? I was not expecting that term. And then like how this was used to then like really just like ratchet up all of the denial <laughs> and how it was, I was blown away. And there's like certain like using the spiritual elements to promote climate change denial and for those of you i mean you can explain of course but the unification church is massive there's a lot of people that believe in in that this is surprisingly so like what the hell like this story is wild i've never heard of it and i'm reading in the book and i already and like that twist though with the 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 moons and stuff was wild (laughs) just tell us this story and and really just kind of if I, if I want to ask specifically, you can talk about his evolution and stuff, but what do you think it was that made the turn? Like, what what was that, you think? Um, I think it's just that, uh, like, he didn't... He started out as... Envi- First, he started out, he wanted to be a rocket scientist. So it could be... One of the things that uh, I noticed about the deniers, and that's why it was great to tell their stories, right, um, is that they're... I mean, first off, they needed the money, right? So the first the the first person who in the modern era who makes denial a job is someone I also loved your email about, Clarence Cook Little, mm-hmm. and he was uh, he he worked in cigarette denial, and he just his reasons for taking the job are I need more money and I want to go to New York City more. And those are two conditions that you often see together. <laughs> those are like the symptoms of flu. If you want to go to New York more, you're probably going to need more money. <laughs> and that was, that was the reason. And also, uh, Clarence Cook Little had been a eugenicist. He had been a scientific bigot, a scientific racist. And it had taken away some of his credibility, but he still had a famous name. Mm. And he still had the appetite for credibility. And so that would drive him into lying about things for money from tobacco and also for the fact that tobacco would get you on the air. Tobacco would get you on the radio and get you on early black and white TV. Singer um, really is a rocket scientist and he is just, it's one of, it's a, I love it. It's a very human story. Um, a friend of mine, the writer Rich Cohen, said that the singer story should really be like a musical, like Hamilton, or like an opera, because it's so human and awful at the same time. So, singer is the person who 
the deniers say invented the movement. Like at one of their big denier conferences, they said he's the most wonderful person working, you know, in skepticism. And there would not be a skeptics movement without Fred Singer. He is a hero, right? Um, what I think is great about him is that his name is S. Fred Singer. He is first generation. He fled to America from Austria, fleeing uh, fascism and uh, and the Germans in World War II. And his real name is Siegfried Singer, but he changed that to S. Fred Singer. So he arrives in America as a man capable of denying even his own first name. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he really wanted to be a rocket scientist, and he wanted to be the kind of rocket scientist who would be in the National Academy of Sciences. Um, and early in his career, he is doing pretty good rocket research. Uh, he's working with a man named James Van Allen from Iowa. Um, and he gets a, and his, his science wasn't always tight. So like other scientists who were interviewed for the kinds of oral history projects that scientists are always, or people who follow science are always making, um, what they would say about Singer is, you know, Fred Singer, it didn't work. <laughs> like he would do these rocket experiments and they would crash in the water or he would send them up and he would come back without any data. But he was doing good work in the ionosphere and he was working with a man named James Van Allen, whose name should be firing a few little neurons as I'm saying it. And Van Allen says, hey, why don't you come out to Iowa and we can work together on this. I'm doing really good research. I think I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to try to get an experiment on the first satellite that we're going to be sending up, Viking, first American satellite in 1959. And Singer's bad luck and I would argue uh, our bad luck as a people. At the same time, the Navy says, Dr. Singer, why don't you become the liaison officer for uh, for the Navy in England? And okay, so your your option is Iowa City, or you can be in London as a liaison officer. And so he picked London, and then James Van Allen uh, was able to get his experiment on the first American satellite. He discovered the Van Allen belt. Uh, he, of course, ended up in the National Academy of Sciences. And Singer, who kept talking up his own credentials, ended up someone who the rocketry uh, part of uh, American physics didn't like. They saw him as someone who would talk about his own work. It wouldn't succeed. And then he's not someone, let's say, who would make the sacrifices. So when he kept trying to push his own stuff but wasn't, let's say, willing to go to Iowa, um, he began to irritate the people on what became NASA so much that they, what he said to interviewers is, I never got a contract from NASA, never. And when they asked him why, and this is what it is to be a person, he doesn't say, well, I wasn't working as well as I could, or I was talking too much. He said, jealousy. Mm. They're jealous of me, and so that's why they won't work with me. Uh, I interrupted what you were going to say, Xavier. No, no, no. I, I, I was just, what you were talking about, like, there's these always these pivotal moments where people will make a decision and you never quite know yeah. where it's going to take you, which is fascinating. So you had this whole thing with like, you know, England or London. Yeah. Yeah. And, London and or I, Iowa. I was, yeah. And it's just like, and then, and then there you go. And then there's, <laughs> and then things happen, right? That's just part of yeah. life. And then it, and it's just crazy how things will just, it will put you, an event will happen and it'll be, you know, maybe a, a big important moment for you. And then all of a sudden 
you're 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 rolling down another way. And that that stuff always. You, I mean, it's it a killer. To everybody, yeah. yeah, it happens. It's crazy though. It's, it's wild. Yeah, it's a little bit like um like Gore not becoming president and and right. Bush becoming. It's the same kind of moment, right? right, right and right, right. and the weird thing about Singer is that the same time that he didn't want to live in Iowa for a few years and, as he said, finish my research with Professor Van Allen or go to London and have a nice time being back in Europe, um, he also loved attention. So one of his fellow scientists said, like, he said, okay, you're me, uh, like, you're me and I'm Fred Singer. And let's say I'm talking to you and we're in a bar and someone walks behind you who is a reporter, someone from the press. Fred's attention will drop from you and it'll go right to that guy and he'll just walk away from the table and start walking to that reporter. Now that makes him a great denier, right? But if you have the need to have people talking about your successes, but you don't want to live in Iowa as opposed to London to create their successes, you're going to find other ways to get that attention. So it's 20 years after, or it's about, let's say 18 years after, and he's working at the EPA right? The early EPA, and he has a job there. And he's writing books where he's saying, it's up to business to pay for their own solution to all the pollutants they've been dropping in the atmosphere. We shouldn't pay for it. And he's writing into the Time Magazine letters page saying, we are constantly degrading our environment. And he's at the EPA, and he is like deputy assistant to policy. And so he asks for a promotion. And he gets shut down, basically. He doesn't get the promotion he wants, and he leaves. Mm. And then four years later, he is working for the oil companies, and he's saying, we don't have to regulate the oil companies. Mm. And uh, the the uh, energy crisis is a myth. And just let the market solve itself, because solve things itself, because they're willing to celebrate him. And um, and he didn't get the promotion at the EPA. So we had two we had two moments where we could have solved the problem of Fred Singer. And so where does the unification church come in? So he is um so he is still like he's writing reports uh protecting the oil industry. And then uh a man named Reverend Sung Myun Moon comes in and he needs scientists who are willing to deny that he's in a cult. And he is, and so what he says in 1973 is more than anything, we need authorities in the scientific fields. Um, but before that, Moon comes in and he, <clears throat> I don't know, people who haven't seen the shows or read the books, the basic thing is that Moon would get your kids to live in small groups and, you know, catnap in vans and they would be on the streets selling like peanuts and roses to people. And then they would also, they would have fake names like the uh, the Committee for Active Research into uh, Empathy, right? The, the things that would spell out CARE, because people knew that the Moonies were dangerous. So you would have a group called CARE, let's say, in Ohio, and you would think, hey, that sounds good. I want to do research in empathy. And then you'd go in and you would be love-bombed for uh, a weekend. They'd say, you're great, you're amazing. And then somehow six months later, you are getting out of a van sleeplessly and you're selling roses and snacks on the streets of Cleveland and you're kicking up all your money to Reverend Moon. Uh, people could make like a few hundred or even a thousand dollars a day just wandering around cities selling flowers and snacks to people. And then when they were deprogrammed, the, the 70s were so wild about this that there were there was a job. You would kidnap people's children. People would hire you to grab their kids off the street and keep them in a motel for a few days and deprogram them from being in this cult, basically. 
Uh, Reverend Moon is making hundreds of millions of dollars. He was so successful that he bought the University of Bridgeport. Um, he bought banks. He bought, uh, you know, TV recording studios. He bought uh, farms. Uh, he bought arms companies. Uh, Reverend Moon also believed that he was... Sometimes he believed that he was the reincarnation or he was the reappearance of Jesus. And yeah. sometimes he just believed that he'd been talking to Jesus, Moses, and God since he was a teenager. Yeah. But what he also said, and he also started uh, a newspaper called the Washington Times, which then became the leading newspaper for President Reagan and President Bush. Mm -hmm. And he was quite mad. And I remember President Bush said, the Washington Times is a paper that has restored sanity to Washington. <laughs> um, and it was so amazing that like Philip Morris, who had obviously problems of their own because they were denying that their product killed millions of people worldwide every year. They said, wow, that's what we have to do. Like they were blown away by Reverend Moon having his own newspaper. They said, it's amazing. It cuts the legs out from under a feet criticism. Because if you have your own newspaper, you control everything, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but, but Reverend Moon also said, you know, by 73, more than anything, we need scientists who will come in and they will say that we're doing valuable work. They'll say we're not a cult, and then they will bring our word back to other scientists. And so we will be seen as legitimate. Um, by the way, the for better or worse, the conservatives and Republicans were um, are so receptive to someone coming in from outside with money that even though Reverend Moon ended up, I think, doing 16 months for tax evasion, um, by the late 80s or by the middle 80s, there wasn't a single conservative organization in D.C. that wasn't taking some money from Reverend Moon. And part of what, yeah, shocking, right? It I mean, it's familiar. Yeah, familiar. exactly. No, it's totally familiar, right? Um, but uh, one of the ways that, that he was made acceptable was certain kinds of scientists were willing to go every year to these conferences where they would say, no, he's not a cult leader. He's a, he's a very intelligent man and he's he's supporting all this extremely valuable research. And of course, it was the two people who became the absolute leading voices for uh, denial of climate change, a man named Frederick Seitz. And of course, S. Fred Singer, he went to the most conferences where he would be like vice chairman, and he would be an organizing person. And then he would say, just what Reverend Moon wanted him to say, that these uh, these conferences have contributed to a great deal of scientific understanding, and they are you know they are they are undeniably useful, and this is a really valuable man. And Frederick Seitz said that this religious prosecution against uh, Reverend Moon has to stop. So yes, the same people and the, those two men who would become the leading voices in climate denial, their most authoritative voices. First time they appear together in a magazine story is saying that Reverend Moon is fine. It is so upsetting to hear it. It's so, I'm like, so like, it's like, how there's a reaction. It's like so obviously like bamboozling people. It's obviously bullshit. And again, people, 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 some people I think just don't take the time to notice. It. It's like, yeah, whatever. I don't really care. But for some people that do are listening to it, it's like, this is obviously you're being hoodwinked. Like, how do you not? see that like how do you, even we we know we see it we, we see it now we see it now with with many other things in politics and it's like how are you allowing something i, I know i can have some criticism on the left which i'll get to later but 
I, I guess the, it's just like, how are you going to be able to say that you're going to listen to this bullshit? Why? <laughs> it's so um, obvious. Like this guy's a charlatan and he's hiring people to just say nice things about him. Uh, people really like to be hired to do things. The thing that really struck me. So it's fun to see you having the same <laughs> hair pulling response that I had because it wasn't like a hidden thing. The moral cost wasn't hidden. It was in the Washington post and singer lives in Washington. Um, and there would be moms in there who had lost kids to the cult. And they would say, all these people should be ashamed of themselves. Like, when you have S. Fred Singer and he is on on videotape saying Reverend Moon is a benefactor to people, they then show those tapes to the kids who they want to. And when kids left the cult, uh, these are by kid, like these are young adults. These are 16 to 25 year olds. They would write things for like Vogue magazine or Glamour magazine. I was a robot for Reverend Moon. Like, and they would they would work like crazy on you to keep you in. They would say, if you leave, you'll lose your soul forever, right? Like it's it's only Satan who's trying to tell you to leave. And so, but Singer would be counting on the fact that you wouldn't have read the articles. And so he would say, look, to an outsider, the doctrines of the Unification Church are no odder than Christian science or Mormonism. And, you know, it's a great thing about humans. We trust each other. If we don't trust each other, how can you buy a Reese's? Like, basically, our society, like, if yes, you think, yes. yeah, <laughs> right, like, like the idea of going into CVS and buying a Reese's, A, you're counting on no one having poisoned it, but also you're counting on cleanliness at the, is it Nestle that owns? I eat so many Reese's, I should know. But our <laughs> sure. society, yeah, our society is basically, yeah, like, uh, having your children vaccinated, getting vaccinated, getting on an airplane, getting on a subway, getting in an elevator. It requires trust every second of the day, basically. And so that trust extends to almost anybody telling us things and especially lettered people. Like um, one of the other great villains of the book is a brilliant pollster for the Republicans named Frank Luntz. And he understood the same thing that Reverend Moon, who is a brilliant a brilliant user of media and television, they both understood the same thing, which is people will take the word of scientists. The way Luntz put it is people are more willing to trust scientists. So if it's, you get a scientist... It's, 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 yeah. that, it's that white lab coat effect, right? Oh, I have a white lab <laughs> exactly, coat and yeah. I have a doctor and boom, yeah, there it is. Exactly. You're just going to believe what I'm going to say. Yeah. Which, look, some of that, I think in general, like historically, is good. Like obviously experts are good. Obviously people are trained, obviously... Like there should always be a little bit of like, okay, yes, but they're not, you know, the fourth person of the Trinity either. Like we should be able to say, okay, you know, maybe ask some good questions, like, you know, push back a little bit. That's fine. And, you know, now it's just gone the other way, right? Now it's gone the other direction, right? Where everyone wants to, you know, do their own research and, you know, we don't need people anymore and that's it. But for, for a long time, but even if, even outside of that though, right? Like you, you, like, Again, this is a sort of connected, but not. But like, I mean, people gave so much money to televangelists. Like, not they did that in the eighties and nineties, but they they still do that. Like, they still get this person. <laughs> this person is flying in like a private jet and making you know so much money, not taxable. And it's like, you know, Pat Robertson, you know, you, you just people are still giving this guy fucking money. It's like he's so <laughs> yeah. obviously pulling the wool over your eyes here. 
What are you fucking doing? Yeah, I was I was smiling because uh, are you? Um, we were talking about books before we started, uh-huh. and um, I love the writer Borges. You must like Borges, right? Borges. Uh, oh yeah, is yeah. I just I just had a I had a great conversation recently with um, William Eggington. He wrote a fantastic book, Rigor of Angels, and it talks about Borges and uh, uh, Heisenberg and uh, Kant. It's a great book. Uh, Fabulous. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, that's another Trinity, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, Borges said this great thing. He said, the person does not exist who outside their own specialty is not credulous. Mm. Like the kind of highly segmented society we have, it depends on that trust. Now we may have gone too far in the other direction, but Borges is right. Like mm-hmm. if we see a lab coat saying, you know, this, this religion is no odder than Christian science or Mormonism or Roman Catholicism or something, it's like, okay, like, why shouldn't I trust this person? Because if you're gonna, if you're gonna stop trusting, where does your mistrust end, right? Uh, Once, once we become awake to the idea that people might be lying, that can be useful. But then, for example, the anxiety people had about the vaccine for COVID, Mm -hmm. that is a very negative version of the other side since the vaccine is life-saving and also it's life-saving for you and your family and then for your neighbors families as well so yeah the other i don't think our society can be effective without a certain level of trust and that's why deniers and then the people who i refer to as mood artists Mm -hmm. the people who like fiddle with the mists inside your head right and make those mists into shapes that they can use um, what they're basing that on is that if someone has been credentialed and they are stepping forward to speak for a corporation, we assume that they must have something good to say. And I think it's bad if we begin to mistrust. The idea is that just presumably there are gatekeepers who will say this guy, Fred Singer, is a liar. But at the time in media, um, it made a slightly better story. Um, but also they thought they were being responsible. It's like, there's one, yeah, go ahead. Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I want, I want to cut in here. Cause it's something I, I, I I've thought about a lot. Cause, I, Cause we're only about halfway through the damn Fred Fringer story. <laughs> I know. I know we're only halfway through. So there's one thing that I think is, I'm curious for your thoughts on this that I've thought about is to me, I've thought about this. Okay. If, if, if I, if I, if I'm, if I'm doing what you're saying, somebody's a, a scientist or an expert or whatever, and they tell me something. And let's say I believe it. And I really believe it, right? And believing it means not just hearing the, the words, but like I, I kind of live it, right? I, I believe, I, yes, this does work. Yes, I do believe in, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Homeopathy and all, the, right? all the things. That, <laughs> it works. It works. It works, right? Yeah. So when, when, I, when I really believe it, and then, and then it comes out, you know, there's a preponderance of evidence that says, this is bullshit. This is not right. You were lied to, whether it was directly or indirectly. I think for just most people, and I just think nobody likes to admit this. I, I don't like admitting it sometimes when, when, when I've been, you know, fooled or whatever it is. People don't like being look like, or being placed in a situation where they look like they're an idiot. They got they got tricked. You're you're the you're the guy in 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 you know downtown Manhattan with three card money or whatever. And it's like you know yeah. it's just like ah oh, damn like you know like I got or I got you're scammed. the person yeah you're the person who bought a Zune 
Now, apparently the Microsoft Zune was better than the iPod, but like you believed it and you and Microsoft said this is going to replace the iTunes architecture and you're the one who fell for it. And now like you bought your kid a Zune and you feel like you failed. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. It's, just, it's just like that. And it's like, I think people don't want to admit that they believe something that they know is bullshit. So they double down. They double down on it. And they know they're wrong or they know there's something wrong, but they don't want to look like a fool. And I think that, because again, is we've touched on a little bit in this conversation, but this seems why this stuff is so powerful is, you know, we know, we know this thing is, it drives me absolutely fucking bonkers. We know conclusively, there's no debate on this, that the, 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 the whole thing of vaccines or certain vaccines cause autism is not true. That was made up data. The, the person did time for that. They took all of that study out. They took all, like people reproduced those studies and to found that this was not, wasn't that it wasn't even true. It was just all fabricated. And in a sense, he did admit to doing it. It doesn't matter. People believed it. And they're not going to let it go, even if the person. So now it's run out the lab. Excuse the expression, and 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 now you have people like there's it, you know it's in conspiracy world, and unfortunately, conspiracy world is mainstreamed. Hmm. Now you have people like you know, you know Bob Kennedy Jr. You know, saying that shit. We all know that's not true. It's not that it was. Well, that's your opinion, or you know, those are your scientists over there. No, this is the easiest thing, and I will hmm. still have people ask me, well, you know, maybe these vaccines do cause autism. We see a lot more autism now. Maybe there's something to this, and it's like, what? No, this is maybe other things. Yes, right. You want to talk about ivermectin or mitocarditis or whatever? All these effects on on a new vaccine or newish vaccine. I mean, I'll listen to those conversations. That's fine, I guess. This is totally different. This was 30 years ago. This was a handful of studies. Mm. We all know it was made up and he did time for this. And people still believe it. And when I think, I've thought about that so many times. I'm like, why the fuck would you, you you're not an idiot. Mm. And, the, and the idea to me is people just don't want to be, I got sold the used car. And as soon as I take it off the lot, it all fucking falls mm. apart. Right. Mm. I don't want to be, I don't want to be the, 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 the fool. And People care more about that status image, which has importance, than admitting they were wrong. Or, you know what? Yeah, I did believe it. And I got I got duped. And, you know, I'm glad I recognize it. People don't want to do that. And so they just double down harder and harder and harder, knowing that it's not true. That's and maybe some people will say you're too optimistic. There are some people out there who are just dumb. And I don't think that. <laughs> I don't think that. Maybe, maybe that's true, but. I just don't think that. I think people don't like the image that they were they were tricked and they were fooled. So it's this kind of thing with 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 Singer and 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 climate change. Now it's like you can obviously know his association with someone that's saying he's Jesus Christ, or <laughs> like it's just obviously not true. Even if you're not a religious person, you know that's not true. Yeah, you would think that when you see him. Like he had a, a Reverend Moon, I think this would have been in the early 90s. Um, he had a banquet at the Dirksen Senate office building. 
And people just thought they were coming. He would trick people by giving them invites to like, this is a luncheon for world peace and who's not going to go to world peace. And then he had the weird thing about crowns. I want to go back to what you were saying, but just, um, so instead of being a thing about a luncheon about world peace, there are these Congress people there and he has a congressman bring out a member of the house of representatives from Maryland, by the way, um, bring out a crown and put the crown on his head, and then he declares that he is none other than the Messiah and uh, and you know uh, the returning Lord Jesus Christ. And <laughs> you would think, but it's more like rather than saying, "Oh, I made a terrible mistake," it's just like, like you're hoping nobody, you're hoping you're not on the videotape, right? In that right, thing, right? And then um, <laughs> I loved writing about that because uh, voiceover. If you've ever known voice actor. Uh, voiceover actors they really are like the unshockable professionals of the entertainment world because they've had to you know do voiceovers for air disasters or they've had to do voiceovers for ads mm -hmm. and they had to hire someone to do a voiceover for this effect where moon was crowning himself in front of this luncheon at the dirksen office building in the senate and you could hear this person just taking a deep breath before he said <laughs> God's painful heart was eased. <laughs> you can just hear someone thinking about their immortal soul. So money, money will, money will uh, pay for a lot of behavior that is not useful for the commonweal. But I love what you were saying about people not wanting to admit that they were duped. And I was thinking while you were saying that, I think that the reason why is that um, skills that we would have had before would be. Uh, skills of valor, right? In a world that was more keyed towards violence or defending against violence, right? Or in, these are just our romantic notions of the past, or in a pre-civilized thing, it would be skills in growing or skills in hunting. But in a, in a communications-oriented society, the skill that you show is the ability to distinguish truth from falsehood. Yeah. So if you say you fell for something, and fell for for a while, it's declaring to the people in your orbit that you're not that good at this necessary skill. Mm -hmm. And who wants to say something disqualifying about themselves? Mm -hmm. Is that the way you read that too? Yeah, I think I do. I do read it that way. Is that I? I think I think there's a lot more to it. I mean, there's obviously the the social aspect, which I was talking about, like you know, appearing in public. Of, of, no, but the the, the self concept almost right, and also self marketing. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I I agree with what you're saying. I think it's also one of those things that I think just in general for somebody, what we would say intrapsychically, right? So in within yourself, it's just hard. We 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 do us so much amount of self deception as well. And now some of that's good. I'm not I'm not making that a a, a, a entirely a, a negative thing, but. Yes, I think people, a lot of people don't want to 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 say like, oh man, how how do I really, I don't I don't know this, I need to rely on someone else to tell me or help me with this, and I think, I think I I mean I tried to do it, and I think I've seen other people I respect do it, where they say, you know, I'm not sure, I don't know, or you know what, but, you know that that's different, I, you know, let me I got to change the way I think about that. Um, do you ever read the the corrections, which is a great long novel by John Franzen? Mm -mm, it's read. worth your reading because I think that um, I I know what your literary taste, and I totally endorse your literary taste. But I think you <laughs> might find this interesting, just on a number of like also sort of news levels. And there's a middle section where a couple is battling over their memory of a recent event. Mm. And the focus character in this hundred-page section 
it's uh, I think it's chapter three of this book. Um, his wife wants him to say he's depressed. She wants him to admit he's depressed, but it's third person. The husband, his name is Gary in this section. He understands that if Carolyn gets him to admit he's depressed, the risk is no opinion of his will ever be taken seriously in the family because they will all be the products of somebody who is in chemical depression. Mm. Similarly, we are inundated with news. And so we think, our brains think, okay, we're supposed to, in the same way that we had to figure out how to catch a bird with a makeshift cage, right, on the on the, on the the forest floor or something, we are looking at news all the time. Presumably what we're supposed to do now is try to see patterns in the news and figure out which stories are important and which stories aren't important, right? And if you admit that you were taken in by something for a long time, what you're saying to everybody who's important to you, everybody around you is disregard me for a few years because <laughs> I'm the one who fell for the vaccine story or I'm the one who fell right. for that. So right. of course you will ride it out to the end because nobody wants to disqualify themselves in a highly competitive system. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. Nobody, it is a kind of, again, it's a, it's a, I mean this in, a, in the actual sense, it's a type of signaling of like, Hey, I didn't do the kind of cognitive shifting I needed to do to say, that's that's not good. Yes, that is in the maybe category. Okay, this is, you know, that kind of organization that we're doing with, you know, media and with news and with information. And you know, I think I mean, look to be fair, I think a lot of a lot of that is uh generated that way. It's generated to to play play on your emotions. A lot of news is there to, you know, reaction and it's in and it's, you know, your emotions and um and you your know, prejudices and your, your prejudices, yeah. right, right, right. All those things. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's again, I'm not saying that I've, that's never happened to me or, you know, whatever. I, I mean, that happens to all of us, but I think it is trying to be more aware of it. And maybe some people are now, but yeah, I do think there's, there's a, there's a big piece of it. So, and, okay. Right. So with Singer, yeah, yeah. So, so with Singer after the moon thing, um, yeah, how does this scale? Like, how does he yeah. get this to scale? Okay, that's, that's so, the next so, so yeah. what he needs is like, um, he's been working with Moon for a while, and Moon publishes three books of his, and then Moon wants to start his thing. He wants to start a think tank because think tanks are something that have become very big in the eighties. So he starts a think tank called the Washington Institute for Values and Public Policy. Now you wouldn't you hear that? You I loved watching you nod. You don't think Unification Church, no, where no. a man is saying no. he's he's the reincarnated version of Jesus, right. and that his son has his uh, one of his sons died in a in a he was driving a jeep and he ran into a jackknifed uh, tractor trailer very tragic and um, because he was moon's son moon and the theologians of the unification church claimed that he had become the youth king of heaven um so uh you know you don't want to it's going to be hard to influence uh, the direction of the US government if you're saying it's the Unification Church, where there are also stories about how your son has a higher ranking than Jesus in heaven, which is what the Unification Church was claiming. So you come up with much better names like the uh, Professor's World Peace Academy, or you decide to have a think tank called the Washington Institute. It sounds good. Yeah, I'm at the Washington Institute for Values and Public Policy. Sounds way better than the Moonies or the Unification Church. And he needed people to make that seem serious. So he, Fred Singer, volunteered to do a thing called the um, the Environmental Policy Project, right? 
uh, at the Washington Institute for Values and Public Policy. And the reason that he would do that is then if he's writing, if he's writing uh, letters into nature, or if he's writing a column for the Washington Post, he doesn't just say S. Fred Sanger, I'm a scientist. It's S. Fred Sanger, Washington Institute for Values and Public Policy. So that's what he's getting out of it. He's getting a title and he assumes no one will do the second level of research, which is, holy shit, that's the Moonies. It's just, oh, Fred Singer's really respectable. And we also, we're hierarchical creatures. It feels great to say that you're running this program at this think tank. And so that's how... Then he later on says, oh, I wasn't really involved with the Moonies. And he just knows that you won't. He says, that's a dead horse. That's a total myth. And he knows that, let's say maybe two or three, if 100 people hear it, two or three, and this is also before the internet where it's easy to do that research, mm-hmm. almost nobody is going to double check. And if they do double check, you'll say, well, it's a matter of opinion, right? Like I, you know, I was never selling flowers and uh, and peanuts on the streets. I was never part of the of the actual cult. And, you know, it was a think tank. And so then um, while he was there, he went, uh, uh, do you know, consumer reports? It's just, it was a thrilling, yeah, yeah. funny, it was just yeah. like, it was just a great, funny, big story that ended up being about how America has matured, let's say from, I don't know, 18, 1879 when, uh, when Edison has the first working prototype to now. Um so Consumer Reports, where that actually comes from was <laughs> there was a book in the 1930s uh, called uh, 100, 100 Million Guinea Pigs, and it was by a man named F.J. Schlink. And he just said, this is like, you wouldn't have wanted to buy a Reese's in the early 30s because you might buy it and it would be like that candy company in Monty Python where it's like, it's it's a frog garnished in lark's vomit or it's spring surprise. And there are like, <laughs> there, are, there are metal rods that are puncturing your tongue when you eat it. <laughs> like they were doing that. They were, um, uh, they were there was a product called uh, Radithor, which it was aimed at male anxieties. It would, uh, it would pr- promote a great health in the sex organs. And it actually, it was just, it was the same kind of thinking that 20 years later or 30 years later, Stanley and Steve Ditko would say that if a radioactive spider bites you, um, you get the powers of the spider. It's the 1930s. And if you swallow radiation, it will solve whatever your bedroom problems are. <laughs> and so there was this product called Radithor that was being sold and the U.S. amateur golf champion was taking it to rejuvenate his sex organs. And uh, I think he died weighing 90 pounds and like uh, all his teeth had fallen out and his, it's literally had radium in it. Uh, So there were products like that. And FJ Schlenk wrote this book called a hundred million Guinea pigs. That's where the phrase Guinea pig comes from. Mm. Um, Any, any scoundrel who gets it into his mind to experiment on us can sell anything and there is no consumer protection. So we're all Guinea pigs in the eyes of these business scoundrels. The F, you know, the, um, all of the product inspections, all that thing comes out of FJ Schlenk. Then he started a magazine called consumers research and it was really successful. And then the people who work there, it's kind of thing that would happen at Vice or BuzzFeed. Mm-hmm. They weren't getting paid enough. And so there was a strike and it was the kind of long strike where the police show up and people are throwing rocks and this radical consumer protection splinter group left consumers research and they started a magazine called Consumer Reports, 
which is one of the great publishing success stories and also one of the great consumer success stories, like microwaves not boiling your hands, like disc brakes that don't that stop you from dying, airbags, right? That's all because of consumer reports. But Schlink, like the deniers, he was changed by the experience and he became a right-wing guy who would protect the company. So if you were selling a shitty product, and you didn't want to be regulated, you'd kind of go to Consumers Research, this magazine that sounds like Consumer Reports, Mm -hmm. and they would say something good about you. So in the early 90s, while he is working for the Washington Institute for Values and Public Policy, uh, Sanger is getting into this sort of twilight world of Mm semi-scientists, and he goes and he gives a speech at one of the Consumers Research Symposiums, and it's in Dirksen. It's the same place where Reverend Moon put on his crown showing that he was king of peace. And he gives a speech saying, climate change, climate isn't going to change. And uh, the tobacco people say, here's a scientist that we can use. And so that's how he makes the change from helping Moon deny that he's in a cult to helping the tobacco people deny that their product is going to cause lung cancer, not just in people who are smoking it, but in people who are standing near people who are smoking a Marlboro. Is is the like is is the like the newest iteration of this where you don't have to be deceptive and you know do all of these uh, wait, things? Wait, can you hold your question just because? Um, because I want to know the iteration, but I just want to give you a sense of the kinds of things you can hire people to deny. So at this Please. conference in 91, there's a guy there who's saying, improved gas mileage is a disaster. It's a health risk. And he's someone who's there working on behalf of the car companies who don't want to have to build more efficient engines. And so the way he's selling that idea is, and it sounds reasonable, sort of. To build cars that get better gas mileage, you're going to have to build lighter cars. They're going to have to be made not out of like the very heavy steel of like the Ford Model A's and stuff like that, or even like a a Ford LTD or whatever. You're going to have to build it like a Toyota Corolla. And if you get hit by a truck, you're going to die if you're in such a vehicle. So improved gas mileage is a health risk. Or, Or you'll have somebody saying, there are lots of health risks if you go to an organic grocer because we don't know, like, you know, if Nestle is selling something, it's going to be safe, but a small organic grocer. So you can't trust organic groceries. Plus a lot of foods there cause cancer anyway. So that's the company that that he's walking into. You can hire people who haven't, you know, they haven't succeeded as much as they want and they have bills to pay. And so that's the company that Singer has been forced to join still because he went to London as opposed to Iowa city, but go on with what you were going to say. So, so we still see that. Like I can find three scientists to tell me that, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. I mean, I can, I can find, I can find three scientists and I can look up papers myself that are in journals (laughs) that tell me, you know, something easy here is, you know, I can find, you know, probably more than three papers, uh, you know, Eating a Snickers bar every day is going to be good for my health, right? Or, <laughs> or I, like the wine stuff, right? Like right, if you drink right. a glass of wine, glass of wine yeah. every night, right? Yeah. You'll be an alcoholic, but you'll you know it's good for your heart, <laughs> right? You know? Uh, right? You know, or the thing, you know, if if a uh, new study shows that uh, drinking three <laughs> cups of coffee a day is actually really good for your attention, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. we we see a lot of that stuff, 
But like, even with the the vaccine stuff, I mean, it was yeah. not hard to find people that were saying, this no. is going to make you grow a third arm and, you know, whatever, whatever, and don't take this. But, you know, take these horse pills and it will be amazing for you, right? You know, it just, that's not hard to do, right? It's not hard to do. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of this was pioneered by tobacco because they always had a product that was controversial and was kind of dangerous. And it goes back to the 1920s. Um, this was how they were marketing it. They were saying, it's a great thing for women because you'll lose weight. And mm-hmm. so what they said is that if you don't, you know, they were marketing, um, they were marketing luckies at women and they had Amelia Earhart, the aviatrix was, uh, and she would say, reach for a lucky instead of a sweet. And so the the candy industry, they reached for a scientist. They got the the health commissioner of Chicago, the former health commissioner, and he wrote a paper, The Importance of Candy for a Healthy Diet. Because you can always get someone to write a paper like that. Right. And so then, yeah, and so then Old Gold, who was competing with Lucky Strike for our tobacco dollar, they said, you know what? They're both healthful. You know, have a cigarette. You know, have a candy, two healthful treats. But again, like the tobacco understood, they they worked out all the dance steps. It's like get a scientist, or get a health commissioner, put them out there, and we are trained to trust those people because if we don't, we can't have a society. So you can certainly find scientists. And the last thing is that on that, there are certain things people want to believe. So yeah. one yeah. of the one of the crazier deniers in our century is a man named. Uh, lord or viscount now christopher monkton monkton he has no credential but he just he is a and for people who are listening to this near a keyboard just look up christopher monkton m-o-n-c-k-t-o-n and look up pith helmet in quotes if you want to see a great photograph of him wearing one of those safari helmets um he had no science credentials of any kind um but he wrote a report saying climate change wasn't going to happen. And he wrote it for, he was a business consultant. So he was hired to write that. And the people he wrote it for, they gave it to the London Telegraph. And when they posted it, there were so many hits within the first few hours that it crashed the server because people wanted to believe that it's way better. If like, we don't want to have to change the way we use electricity. We don't want to stop flying off on vacation or flying to see loved ones in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. And we don't want to feel bad for having enjoyed those tremendous benefits and thinking that we borrowed weather from the future. And so if someone is willing to write, I don't know, five pages in the London Telegraph and the Daily Telegraph saying it's not going to happen, it's what we want to hear. So part of what helps it go across is our own desire to be told that it's so. Yeah, no, I, I fully, I fully agree. For that's true for a lot of people, and I think it's. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, and and they'll say, you know, well, 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 actually, that's not true. You know, I, I read this, uh, I read this thing, and it actually says this, and and people will find, they'll curate the thing they like. But the other thing I was going to say is that the the iteration after all of this that you, we've been saying, it just seems that like conspiratorial thinking is the next level of this where. Now it's like I don't I don't need to be sold like deceived a little bit to say this is good or bad for me. It's just like no. I know that this is what's true. Doesn't even matter what any of this other stuff says, mm-hmm. right? I know that these vaccines are terrible. Mm-hmm. Or I know 
you know, that actually, you know, 5G is what's really just giving me cancer, <laughs> right? Or, yeah. I, you know what I mean? Like, it's 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 now like with, it's a little bit more out in the open. It's a little bit more like, it doesn't matter how wild it is. What is this? 13% of Americans believe that there's actual fucking lizard people, right? Like, it's something outrageous. I'm surprised it's that low. I, I mean, yeah, that's like 40 around. million people. Yeah. But here's what I would argue about that, because I've thought about this a lot, and it's fascinating talking to you. Mm-hmm. I think that we're just, we're primitive. And this is what Einstein meant when he said that these inventions, you know, the the inventors of techniques of whom you are the most successful have placed mankind in a totally new situation to which it hasn't at all adapted itself yet. Um, I think we're still fairly primitive. So if you tell us there's a new vaccine, the part of us that's still sort of animal is like, there's got to be a cost, mm-hmm. right? We're putting a new thing in our body and we're going to respond in the same way that when we went, when we brought vaccines, let's say to parts of America that had never seen, like if we brought them to the Ozarks or to parts of Appalachia and you were injecting people, they were quite anxious about it because they didn't know what to expect. So I think that underneath it all, we are still fairly primitive animals living, you know, in a very sophisticated semi-digital world. And so there's a primitive reward punishment system. And weirdly, I think that acted against belief in climate change for a long time because it sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Which Mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we can have this electricity and it will make our lives faster and way better. But there's going to be a fairy tale cost, which is it's going to ruin our, it's going to ruin our climate and weather for the foreseeable future. That sounds like Hans Christian Andersen or the Grimm's and it's so narrative in a way that I think on some level, on a sophisticated level, it made it harder to believe that because it's so matched our our primitive biases. Like if you say we're going to inject a new thing into your bloodstream that will protect you against this disease, there's the part of us that's like, no, maybe that's not a good idea that we all try to outgrow. And the idea that electricity or the carbon dioxide that's released while we are generating electricity, that our electricity will have a terrible cost to be paid, that does sound fairy tale-ish. And it, in a weird way, I think it made it possible to discount it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do agree with you in terms of the narratives. I, I, I do. I definitely think we're narrative making people, obviously. And so there are certain aspects of, well, that sounds too good to be true, or that sounds very strange. Too bad to be, or too, or too bad, bad to be right, true. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. I, I agree. Too neat. Yeah. I guess one of the one of the last few questions here is, you know, so obviously. Oh we, no, we're, well, we're right in the middle, Xavier. Uh, I'll, 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 <laughs> I'm okay. just messing around. Never go on. One of the last few questions. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I want to ask about. So there, Wait, obviously, before you, before you ahead, do though, with Singer, so the reason Singer's story is great is that it maps a whole evolution in. Um, in denial and how denial, how the forces that were trying to protect cigarettes then became the forces that were keeping us burning and creating carbon dioxide. So here's the basic thing quickly. And it also has to do with why people don't want to admit they were wrong. Here's the risk of admitting that you're wrong. Here's the reason people don't like it. So cigarettes are at a terrible spot in the 80s. In the 60s, they learned a wild thing, which is the government could declare the certain. You know, do you ever, were you ever a smoker or do you have friends who were smokers? No, but, I mean, all of my family did. And, you know, okay, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. Okay. So remember that little box on the back of the yeah. Marlboro Lights, mm-hmm. the warning the Surgeon warning General Surgeon has General. determined? Mm-hmm. That's from 64. Mm-hmm. It's very much like what the National Academy of Sciences did with the Turney panel in July of 1979. For about six months, they went over the thousands of studies 
saying whether or not cigarettes cause cancer. Now, the cigarette companies knew it caused cancer going back to, let's say, the mid-40s. And they were just hoping that we <laughs> they tried to bury it, you know, without clues somewhere. And they were hoping that we wouldn't be able to get a map and dig it up and open the chest <laughs> like, oh, it causes cancer. But in, I think, February of 64, they did, they released their findings. And, um, but this is an answer to your question too. They were uh, on the, this, the reason why this interview has been so intellectually nourishing for people who've made it this long, but is lasting way longer than either of us expected it to last. <laughs> I love it. Is, yeah, is because it's a great story, but a lot of things are kind of connected. And your way of looking at this is thrilling to me because it keeps connecting with parts of the book. So uh, for the Surgeon General's uh, team, the panel that was going over all the groups, they began meeting in 62. And they were scrupulously fair. They were, it was like if you're playing pickup basketball, skins and shirts, mm -hmm. there were five smokers and five non smokers. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the two years of research, um, all of the smokers, except for I think two of them, stopped smoking because the data was totally hair raising. And there was one of them named Louis Fleiss, who was at Harvard. I think he was a professor of chemistry at Harvard. And he ended up developing napalm for the army, the, one of the premier weapons in uh, Vietnam. Mm -hmm. He got cancer because he was still smoking 40 cigarettes a day, filling the ashtrays at the meetings while they were going over the subject. And he got cancer during that period. And what he said, it just has to do with being a human animal. My own case is more persuasive than any of the studies. Mm. And what I thought, it's sort of like, and I, I have great impatience with this because I spent a year in the 90s. I was talking about the the story I won the GLAD Award for mm -hmm. uh, three or four weeks ago when we began this podcast. <laughs> uh, I remember being very impatient with politicians who would only march, they'd only go to the Pride March when their kids turned out to be non-heteronormative. It's like, that's what you needed. Mm -hmm. But similarly, for here's the pro professor of organic chemistry at Harvard, and he said, my own experience is more persuasive to me than any of the studies. Uh, so even at the at, at every level, we have to experience it ourselves. Maybe our superstitions, our biases tend to determine our actions. So um, from 64 on, they thought it was going to be very detrimental, but they were still selling more cigarettes than ever because people wanted to smoke. And the way we see it is, okay, if, you know, uh, Louis Fleiss, if you want to keep smoking, Fleiss actually stopped smoking then. That's your business, but you're not hurting me. But by the mid-70s, it turned out that secondhand smoke, like if you're smoking on a subway or on an airplane or in a movie theater or in a marriage, your wife or your husband right, um, is going to also be smoking. And so once that was clear that was going to be an issue, the Roper organization in 78 said, this is going to turn uh, – this is going to turn – this movement of anti-smoking uh, from like a small movement into a tide that you can't resist, mm. right? Because it's not just what you do to yourself, it's what you do to your neighbors. And so they were extremely anxious about that. And then in the mid 80s, the EPA declared secondhand smoke a class A carcinogen. And they said it was the leading uh, atmospheric uh, cause of cancer in the country. And they were worried about it. They were waiting for it. And they knew that it was the silver bullet that was going to 
take them down. Silver bullet is the phrase that they used. Um, around the time that this was happening, there was a very frank meeting that they had in Hilton Head. I think this was in 87. And uh, just one of those clever lawyers, the same lawyer who said that America has the most adversarial culture in the world, he just said, we are in deep shit. Mm-hmm. Right? And so what they came up with is a strategy that works on the reverse angle of what you were saying, which is you don't want to admit you were fooled. And then we were talking about it because it's kind of disqualifying in a culture where the ability to hunt out a correct news story and separate that from an incorrect one. If you can't do that, it's kind of it, your fear is it's disqualifying for you in an information culture. That's why we're reluctant to admit our mistakes. They figured out the reverse thing, which is the EPA is saying that secondhand smoke and God, the the mood artists are brilliant. The name that the cigarette companies came up with for secondhand smoke, so brilliant. They called it environmental tobacco smoke. <laughs> it's just in the environment. Yeah, it's the guy next to you is having a Marlboro, but it sounds like, yeah, the trees and the hills, they're having a cigarette. You can't do anything about it. Um, so what they came up with was, it's the EPA saying this. So if we can show that the EPA is wrong on some bigger issues, mm. then people will think they're wrong about us. Mm. And so, so it became they, an ad hominem kind of a thing. Exactly. Right? Uh-huh. If you can show that they're wrong about climate change, mm. then they're wrong about environmental tobacco. Mm. Everything else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they began funding, training and funding the scientists, Frederick Seitz and Fred Singer, who had just been working with Reverend Moon. They were willing to deny that environmental tobacco smoke caused secondhand, caused lung cancer in people who were married to smokers or who were sharing an elevator with smokers. That served the short-term interests of tobacco. And then that strategy worked for about, let's say, 10 more years. And then they settled all at once. They, They got out of denial. But in the meantime, they had come up with this strategy and they had trained the people and then the fossil fuel companies inherited Fred Seitz and S. Fred Singer from tobacco. One of the um, one of the secondary people, not a scientist, but a famous denier named Stephen Malloy. He just the way he described it, it was summarized by popular science. He moved into climate denial when funding from the tobacco denial when that began to dry up. And in the same interview in 2007, he said, and this was shocking to me also. There's only about 25 of us doing this. Mm. 25, and in a way, it's a great negative human achievement. 25 highly skilled people who learned how to use this strategy that was developed by the tobacco industry, they could frustrate the will of a whole country and then really the will of the industrialized world just by saying these simple things. It is an immense achievement. Mm. 25 people, mm. two dozen plus one. Wow. I remember it's interesting. It's, 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 it's funny how the the culture shift for for smoking became uh, I, I feel like it went fast I, one time i was talking with my daughter and we were talking about uh I was talking about restaurants of sorts and all the all the folks that work in a restaurant and kind of the you know how things kind of function it's like you know it used to be when you when you go into a restaurant i said you know i can remember when i was younger you go in there and the 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 hosts the hostess would say okay would you like smoking or non-smoking <laughs> my daughter had zero concept of that <laughs> zero she's like what she's like yeah smoking or not smoking there's a smoking section and not smoking section she goes but you can't smoke in restaurants 
That's all she knows. That's all that's all she knows, right? I was like, Yeah, I used to be able to smoke on planes. And she was like, What? She couldn't believe she couldn't believe it, right? And it's it's just interesting kind of how fast that what that changed, that that narrative changed. And then I do think also that obviously health stuff is, is a big piece of it, but I also think it's just economically. I think once cigarettes became super expensive, people were like, Listen, I'm not paying eight dollars for a pack. It's not doing it. Yeah, but they were, you know, it's pretty inelastic once people are Either they have a dependency or an addiction, depending on how you mm-hmm. depending and dependency. But but uh, whether or not you classify that as a as an addiction or not, right? You get people used to having nicotine in their bloodstreams. I think they will pay it. Um, it was just it became they understood they understood how devastating it was. So there were minutes for these meetings, and it was like industry is going down. Charts don't hold out hope for us, and so. What what they arrived at is make people mistrust scientists and science. Mm. That was the only strategy available. But I remember that one of them, when you were mentioning restaurants, one of the reasons why I laughed was an immediate problem is that smoking was being banned in restaurants. And if you can't smoke, you're going to stop. And so one of their solutions was we create attractive uh, restaurants for smokers. Like they were very long-headed and practical, but the solution they came up with and we're paying for it is you have to make people stop trusting scientists. Like Mm -hmm. this is in the minutes of their meetings. Like we have to reveal that science, people think of science as being objective and they think of scientists as being servants of the people. And we have to make people mistrust science and we have to get the idea of bad science into the it's a little bit like inception that mm-hmm. the art of capital we have to incept the idea of bad science and so what they also said is we need a better term than bad science cuz bad science is a little vague and then a few years later they hired the, there was a a writer who had come up with the term junk science mm-hmm. and so people who use the phrases junk science and sound science those are concepts that were invented by the tobacco industry or popularized by them to make you mistrust the kinds of so you can draw a line between we need to have a better term than bad science to people who would refuse to take the vaccine mm-hmm. because they had to make us mistrust scientists so we would mistrust the estimation that secondhand smoke would kill your kid, kill your grandparent, kill your husband, kill your wife. Yeah, that's it's. It, I mean, the, the PR on this is 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 wild. So, the last question I have, you've been I outlasted you. You've been so generous with your time. <laughs> I don't know what to I, say. It's a it's a great story, and it's also it's been wild to see how this changed the country. So. Yeah. I, you know, it's a story that I think is a thrill to read, but it's also information that I want to share. So please, I would yeah. keep going. I would yeah. keep going for another hour. So I Listen. see you as a lightweight now, Xavier. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed that we've been talking for three hours. Please go you haven't You haven't heard my four-hour conversations yeah. yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've heard three quarters of one. But keep going. <laughs> so I guess let's, let's, let's write, let's, let's, or we can do it verbally, I guess. The, the epilogue for, for your book, right? You don't do current stuff in the book, really. I mean, we, we, you know, I think you you kind of get it to. Uh, I think it's, you said two thousand seven. Yeah, yeah, let me step in. So, can you yeah. just write down where you're going to go? So, there's two things that are the the book is uh, 
the book takes us to the year that uh, Ravel said there'd be a violent effect on our mm. climate mm. and within 50 years, and it's 50 years plus six. He said that the question is, would there be salt water running on the streets of London and New York? Uh, 2012 was the worst flooding. I think it's the second worst flooding in English history. Mm. And there's a, a sea barrier, a sea gate called the Thames barrier, which keeps London from flooding. Mm. And that stopped it from flooding that year. But 50 years plus six years, uh, 2012, there was salt water running in the streets of New York and it shorted out. It was kind of wonderful for me to write just because it was neat, because it was interesting seeing both Edison come back and then Ravel's prediction being proved out. Um, but uh, seawater flooded lower Manhattan, right? Uh, I remember one of the one of the engineers who was shocked by Hurricane Sandy, he said there were waves on Wall Street. There was that much salt, and that, that much seawater had flowed into Lower Manhattan, and it flooded into a power plant uh, that was about five blocks away from where Edison had been creating his light bulbs, mm-hmm. and it shorted out Lower Manhattan. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason the story ends in 2012 is it begins with Ravel saying in 50 years it will have a violent effect and it might cause salt water to run on the streets of Manhattan. And there it is, 50 years plus six. So anyway, that's why it ends there. No, no, I think it's I think it's great. I, I think it's a, it's a nice kind of bookend. I think if you think about post, um, I'm thinking of all the the COP, uh, uh, the Paris Agreement of 14, was yeah. it, if I'm remembering this? And then um, I think it's, yeah, okay, 14 sounds 14, right. 15, sounds right. 14, 15, yeah. 15, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um obviously we've had a lot of every everybody signed but but uh everybody signed but America and Syria. Syria's right. in a terrible civil war. Right. Right. And then yeah. Syria signed. So under Trump it was just us. We just, were the only us. ones outside the treaty until President Biden came in. But so anyway, wild. Go on. Yeah. so wild. But it the climate climate change and 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 how the the you know the planet is changing and and man's involvement in it is still denied, but I that I would say by a small but very loud group of folks. And you know, it's kind of captured the captured the you know talking points of, of the Republican Party in the United States. Now I'll say I'll just say one quick thing on that. Uh, I mentioned it earlier. I I think I think sometimes, so I have a I have a, a kind of negative piece to this, which is, you know, I know that people on the on the left or liberals, which which I, I I'm aligned with, you know, moderate liberal, you know, is is I think it was great a lot of the activism at first, et cetera, et cetera, but I think it went too far. Like I think I think it just it just went too far in how much they were promoting this because because. It what became I don't know if it was anything that it just happened kind of indirectly or whatever, but there's this thing where it became that the issue of climate change and the study of it, climate science, became a left wing yeah. thing. And I think sometimes when we're really captured by ideas that we really we really like, or we really say, look, this is the facts, this is true, and then you push too hard with it. You know, the reality is we live in a political state, right? So if you're too, if one party is kind of owning science on this issue, well, that's that's not right. The science doesn't doesn't have a a, a political party, 
and it really should be for it is going to impact everybody. It doesn't matter what your politics are. And I I wonder, uh, I feel like much of, you know, because you you see reports of this of, you know, the Republican Party nationally is so against it, so denying it because it owns the libs. It's it's the other side, and we're just going to fucking keep throwing sand in their face and looking at you know all these things, mm-hmm. and pushing that out to say. They just want to, you know, the same bullshit, right? They just want to control you. They want to tax you more. They want to scare you. They want to, that's all they care about, you know, all these things. And, you know, we've been talking about this for 70 years. Nothing's happened, you know, whatever, all these things. And I, and I, and they've really kind of leaned into that. And it does become, you know, I find that, I find the fact that if I talk to kind of some conservative folks that I know, we just kind of talk about it. We don't use the words, but we just talk about many of the things. Many people are on board with it. They're like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I see these changes here. Yeah, I would be fine with doing this. But as soon as you use all the words, then it's like, oh, that's what this is about. No, 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 no. I'm not going to. No, 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 no. That's, that, that's, that's too far or whatever. And so I wonder if sometimes inadvertently there was just a, this is too strong of a push or should have been a little bit more pragmatic, if you will. Um, and, and, and I, I, I don't know about that, but I mean, I think it's, it is something I have thought about where it's like, yes, if, I mean, I, deeply care about it it's a huge issue it's one of the you know top three issues in, on the planet and the rest of the world real, realizes that as well um but I, I just wonder if we politicize things that should not be politicized in that way it does make it where this other side is just gonna just just you know poke you in the eye just because you're the other side and we see that in some states in the United States you know so some of the quote unquote red states or Republican states, they don't promote it or they don't talk loudly, but they're also using cleaner energy. They are also using some of their <laughs> their 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 budgets uh to promote um renewables and things like that. But they don't they know they're gonna get a hit, you know, if they talk about this publicly, they might not get reelected. So they just kind of do it and they never talk about it. And and that and I kind of just see that correlation of like like Batman. That's yeah, that's not good. That's not good. And so I wonder, kind of my my beating up my own side is okay, guys. Yes, we need to know about it. Yes, let's do the marches and the rallies and the activism and the hashtag movements and and actually do good work and do you know many of the things to you know put pressure on on policymakers and and do things you can do in your own community. All that's great. But I think sometimes some of the politicization of it is is not good, and I wonder if that continues inadvertently some of the climate change denial uh, still to this day. So all that to say, well, you can tell me if you if you agree or disagree or what your thoughts are on that, and just kind of where we're at now in twenty you know back end of twenty twenty three with climate change denial specifically. Um. That is a extremely meaty question. So it's like uh, if if you're at Thanksgiving and they suddenly say you have to be the one to carve, and it's like <laughs> all the pressure's where, on. Yeah, no, yeah, where am I going to carve? Um, the basic thing, denial. Two things: the idea of denial that's pretty much gone over the last couple of years. So the main thing, it was a little bit like the tobacco denial. It was never designed to win. It was just designed to keep the argument going because you're making a certain 
large measurable amount of money every year. So if the cigarette companies stopped producing their product in 64, they would have cheated themselves out of tens of billions of dollars. Similarly with Exxon, once they inherited both the deniers and the strategy from tobacco, it's, you know, it's hundreds of billions of dollars a year. So the idea is just tease this out, just, you know, just let me keep going for a generation in my job or my the executives who are with me on the C-suite, right? We know we're not going to win, but if we can just tease this out, then we can continue to make money this way. And so now we're at a time when it's very, very difficult to deny that the climate has changed. There was no snow this year in New York, right? None, none, none here either. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it was, it's a, it's funny to, I, all year I've thought about that, um, you know, get back to us in 39 years, right? 1979, you're going to be feeling this. The real effects will be here in 2019. Um, and of course, Ravel saying 2005. So second thing about that is Paul Krugman, he said just what you said in the Times about 10 days ago, that now climate change is part of what we call the culture wars. I don't think that's the part. I don't think that's the fault of the scientists or the campaigners. It was just, it's a, I would look at it a different way, which is if you are on the right wing side, you were dealt a losing hand on this issue, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the Republicans were aware of that going back to the turn of the century, uh, even going. So by 91, uh, when you mentioned this, I think again today. What what's today? Today is Wednesday. <laughs> I'm just fucking around. But but when we first began this conversation at the end of July, <laughs> you had mentioned that there wasn't organized climate denial. That's exactly right. Until the early 90s, um, in '88, Professor Hansen said it's been detected and it's changing the climate now. And so within three years, the coal industry noticed this is a game-ending issue for the coal-fired electrical industry. And so they came up with a strategy, and this was in their, you know, in their position papers. They have to reposition global warming as theory rather than fact. Mm -hmm. um, and they had ways of changing our opinions on that. Before that, it wasn't a polarized issue. It had been on the covers of both Time and Newsweek. Time first, just the greenhouse effect. It's coming, right? It had always Democrats, you know, Democrats owned the, you know, they owned the Republicans a little bit because they were saying, hey, we have to do this. But keep in mind that the person who signed the most legislation is a Republican. Mm -hmm. So it hadn't become partisanized. The only way to keep it going was to partisanize it, if that is indeed a verb, right? So by the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, Frank Luntz, and it's fascinating to me to think of the, again, the mood artists who, what we think of as our own opinions, then you're like, it's like you're getting an x-ray. It's like, oh, it's, it's like, you know, when they cut open a shark and they have, I've seen Jaws 41 times, and they have like a license plate from Louisiana, <laughs> Sportsman's Paradise, Richard Dreyfus throws it out on the dock. Yeah. Um, you have an opinion in your head that was, built there by Frank Luntz or by the tobacco industry or by Exxon. Um, sometimes you'll come up, you'll, you'll come upon relatives of yours or coworkers and they'll say, if it's real, how come they keep changing the name? Uh -huh. Like uh -huh. first it was global warming and then they called it climate change because it wasn't warming fast enough. That's not why that name was changed. <laughs> the reason why that name was changed was that Frank Luntz, 
who is a brilliant person, there used to be a thing called the estate tax, which is, <laughs> let's say, uh, let's say uh, Andrew Carnegie or um, or uh, John Paul Getty. Uh, let's say he dies and he has made a few billion dollars selling oil. And then he has, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to insult the Getty. So let's make up the getter sense, right? And he's got a cocaine addicted son and daughter, or they have however you characterize the kids in succession. Mm-hmm. They're going to be rich forever. They're going to inherit $10 billion. And we as a culture decided, you know what? We're a community and we all want to share in the fruit. So John Paul Gunderson, he was able to live in a really wealthy way, but when he's going to pass down his estate to uh, Rory Culkin and whoever plays Kendall Roy and uh, whoever plays Shiv, Mm -hmm. we're going to tax their estate and we're going to tax it at 50%. Makes sense, right? Because we created the the environment that you could make that much money in. We create the educated workforce. We need the money for our schools and we need the money to clean up the damage that the product has done. So we're going to tax your estate at 50%. Makes a lot of sense, right? So Frank Luntz realized you could, if you have rich people contributing to the Republican Party, the way to get that law off the books is to change the name. Um, Nietzsche, you were talking about Nietzsche. He said that it's been a tremendous, I'm, I'm summarizing as opposed to quoting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could try to find the quote in my book. I'll just do it from, I'll do it from semi memory, from porous memory. It has, it has caused and still causes me the greatest pain that how things are named matters a great deal more than what they actually are. And so when you took the estate tax and you renamed it the death tax, mm-hmm. You could get those numbers dropped from 50% to like 25% or 20%. That was Frank Luntz's. That's his first great contribution to the national life. His second great contribution is if you say global warming, he said this in a famous paper that um, that the Times said had become gospel both for the Republican White House and also for the oil companies. When you call it global warming, it has catastrophic connotations. So we have to act on it, right? So every time he was writing this for Republicans, like this is how this is how this is their cell phone, not their cell phone, but they are self dash owned. This is their cell phone. This is when they commit. Um, he doesn't say we should be working on the issue. And about ten years later, he said that although it was a brilliant memo, and I busted my ass for that memo, you want me to say it? He said to PBS, it was great language. But now my own beliefs have changed and I accept global warming. However, he had already, as a mood artist, he had already released this meme. Um, If you say global warming as a candidate, it has catastrophic connotations and it means we kind of have to act on it. But if you say climate change, that just sounds like you've left Ohio and you've gone to Fort Lauderdale. (laughs) We need to stop saying global warming and start saying climate change. And then everybody began, you know, that became, that became the hipper, the cooler, the neater way to say that. Mm -hmm. And then also the secondary thing of people can say, if it's real, why do they keep changing the phrasing? But, you know, if if Richard Dreyfus were to cut open our beliefs and throw them on a dock somewhere, we'd find that a lot of them were just things that we swallowed that were manufactured somewhere else like that. But that really is where the Republicans committed. So now we're in a situation where people understand that it's happening. And so now they'll say something else, which is, is it worth fixing? And there are, you know, the scientists, they differ from there's that great word in England for people who are committed to an issue, long-term campaigners. Mm-hmm. 
environmental campaigners, they differ from the scientists. The scientists believe, scientists believe in science. They believe in scientific solutions. So the scientists believe we're going to have to have widespread, uh, we're going to have widespread adoption of nuclear power because it excretes. This goes back to Time magazine writing about this in the late 50s. When it was understood back then, you know, how dangerous carbon dioxide warming was, they said the great thing about nuclear power, among other great things, is it it excretes no carbon dioxide. So scientists believe that's the solution that we're eventually, one of the things that we'll eventually need. Um, The environmental campaigners have very solid reasons for hating nuclear power. So that is an internecine fight between on our side, right? Um, But on the Republican side, what you can say is, okay, you guys, fuckers, you were right about climate change, (laughs) right? But the question is, do we want to pay the price? Because presumably, there will be a technological problem. Presumably, there will be a technological solution. And being the creatures that we are, um, the Pew Charitable Trusts did a study, and one of the, one of the things they said is that no important environmental legislation has ever been passed during uncertain economic times, because when the economy is bad, uh, the environment is seen as like, you know, I'm going to get rid of Hulu. Do you know what I mean? Like the environment. If if you're trying to like, if you're nervous about your job or if you're nervous about paying for your kid, right? She's like, okay, you know what? We were going to do the global warming thing, but let's not because it's too expensive. Because <laughs> you know, and the the environment is seen as like a Hulu thing that you can let go for a year. Even the chief of staff under President Obama, President Obama as a candidate, was really committed to climate change, yeah. and he said there are two things I want to do. I want to do energy. That was his word for climate. That was his sort of Frank Luncey thing. Because if you say climate change, it'll it'll make the activate the libs. It'll activate the lib hating Republicans. Mm-hmm. We have to do energy and healthcare, and energy is going first. But then when they got in, it was easier to deal with healthcare. And Rahm Emanuel, who's a tremendously effective uh, organizer of political responses to things, he was chief of staff during the first term, President Obama's first term. He said, look, the dolphins will be okay for another year. So that essentially is the people who were denying up till now on the Republican side, they are on, you know, they they would nod very deeply at what Rom said, which is we can keep this going for a few more years, right? It's not that bad. It's, you know, at least the winters aren't that bad. And then also, if you're a Republican, you don't want to give an inch, right? It's to what you were saying. People don't want to admit a mistake. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, I was wrong about that. And you'll hear this from people if you have family members or coworkers. I was wrong about it, but I was still basically right because yeah. the solution is too expensive. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where we are now. People don't deny the science. They just deny the usefulness of a solution. Uh, the human mind is an extremely flexible organ. <laughs> it's, it, it certainly is. <laughs> well, the sun is coming up. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, uh, the, <laughs> David, it's been it's been such a such a fun conversation. I always enjoy the long form. Um, I, I I think your book is super important, and really, like I said at the beginning, um, kind of detailing the kind of history of how we got here in a very readable, very very attainable way. And and I think it's great. The book is the Parrot in the Igloo: Climate and the Science of Denial. Uh, it's out everywhere through Norton. Um, where's the best place? to find yourself uh, uh, either online or anywhere else where are the best places to get your work or get at you. Um, I, uh, 
I believe just in, in books and, uh, you know, so, uh, the, you know, the, if you're really interested in the topic, um, like the Moonies, if you go to the parrotintheigloo.com and uh, the chapter that the Mooney, there's two chapters about Reverend Moon, um, who digested the scientists. Reverend Moon was fixated on digestion. So what he asked is he was thrilled that he had tricked scientists like uh, Fred Seitz and S. Fred Singer into working with him. Mm-hmm. So he was always talking about himself in the third person. And so he would say, who digested whom? Did the scientist digest Reverend Moon or did Reverend Moon digest the scientist? The umpire has declared a winner. Some people believe Reverend Moon will lose, but Reverend Moon cannot be stopped. Um, so if you go to the parrotnaglu.com, the two chapters about Reverend Moon are Emperor of the Universe, since he also had himself declared that, mm-hmm. and also who digested the scientists. And there's more data. There's stuff I couldn't fit into this book. Uh, and then also I would just go, I would... Uh, there are a number of great resources for climate change itself. You can find uh, Professor Hansen's uh, papers online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would just, you know, I tried to make this a book that you could then show to people in your orbit who um, mm-hmm. who don't believe. And you also could learn yourself. And it would yeah. also be, as you were saying, just super readable. Mm-hmm. So the best place to find me online is to buy an online copy of the book and read it on your phone. That, that, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's absolutely right. <laughs> Uh, David, really, this was uh, such a treat. I feel so, so intellectually nourished and you're an absolutely wonderful person. And so I I can't thank you so much for your work and for all of your time and energy. Uh, It's been a real delight. I thought it was a delight too. Thanks a lot. And thanks for for making this this great conversation. I had no idea that we were on Zoom for three and a half hours, but it was a total pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely.